And good morning, Wake Up Squad. And thanks for getting up with us again later. Industrial clinical psychologist uh, Dr. Edwin Nichols will be back in our classroom. Dr. Nichols will explain how escalating police stops of black men are linguistically and psychologically distinct, distinct in the earliest moments. That's the key, the earliest moments. Before Dr. Nichols, Black Women for Positive Changes, Dr. Stephanie Myers will discuss a new technique used by her group to reduce violence. But to get us started this morning, Professor Dr. Chike Akua is here. Dr. Akua, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Greetings, Brother Carl. How are you? Excellent. How about yourself? Oh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Good to hear that. Uh, and folks, uh, Dr. Aku hasn't been here in a while. I don't know why, but he hasn't been here in a minute. But he teaches at Clark Atlanta University. He's written several books. And what prompted us is he wrote an article to the Washington Post. So i got to ask you this, though. What prompted you to, you know, deliver this article to the Post? What, what was it that you saw about education you think you thought that, you know, the rest of the nation should know about? Well, I've been looking on with great concern uh, about the school curriculum culture wars that are going on, um, not just in Florida. It's really going on around the country. And I wanted to share some information that the general public may not have been aware about, about some of the laws that have been passed in Florida relative to the teaching of our history and culture, and then some of the recent legislation that has been passed um, against past laws. Um, many people may not be aware, but Florida actually has one of the most comprehensive African-American history laws. It's a little-known law uh, that was released in 1994. And one of the things that made it comprehensive in my research, I studied a, a number of different state laws relative to African-American history. Uh, I looked at the laws in the states of New York and New Jersey Illinois, and South Carolina, but I found Florida's to be most comprehensive, and here's why. Because Florida's African-American history legislation requires that teachers teach the African and African-American contributions uh, to America as well as to humanity. In addition, the Florida law did not require that it only be taught in the social studies classroom. The Florida law required that it be taught across the curriculum in every subject, in every discipline. So I found the fact that, that it required that teachers teach about our history prior to our enslavement to be very progressive. And then also since 2006, I've been doing work with the Florida African American History Task Force to help them to be in compliance with that law. But more recently, Governor Ron DeSantis has uh, passed an act that limits um, how our history is taught, and uh, it has led to many educators losing their jobs or, um, you know, being brought up on charges and different things of that nature, being threatened. Uh, and so I felt that it was necessary that our people and the American public know the truth about these laws. Well, I got to ask you this: the, the '94 law that passed in Florida. Who was the governor then? Who who pushed that through the, the state legislature? Do you know? It it was Governor Lawton Childs. However, it was a number of black legislators and educators who were really responsible for bringing that to him. Uh, for example, Senator Rudy Bradley, uh, Representative Frederica Wilson, and others were very instrumental in making sure that that bill was passed. In addition, 
they brought together uh, black scholars and black educators. And they were very, not only very progressive, but very intentional on how the language of that law was articulated. And it says specifically, and this is Florida Statute 1003.42H. And it required that teachers teach, quote, the history of African-Americans, including the history of African peoples before the political conflicts that led to the development of slavery, the passage to America, the enslavement experience, abolition, and the contributions of African-Americans to, of African-Americans to society. So as you can see, they were very intentional on making sure that there was a comprehensive understanding of who we are as a people, not just starting our history in slavery, which so many uh, other people have done in the past. So it was a, it brought together a number of black legislators and educators who, who made this happen under Governor Lawton Childs. Wow. Uh, that sounds outstanding. But let me ask you this, though. Uh, DeSantis' attack, it, was it deliberately on that? Did they do the same research that you did and, and decided to, you know, we're going we're gonna to take that out of, of the teachings of our children? I don't believe that they did the, that they looked at the research that I did, but I also don't think that they cared to. And I don't uh, think that they care to know these things because they have a very particular agenda to make sure that our children don't know who they are and where they come from. And I say this, you can look at, you know, what they the the name of the act that they passed, uh, Stop Woke. So they're telling you that they want you to remain asleep. And this is so very, very important for us to understand. We want black parents to, to understand that parents are the first teachers and that we must teach our children from home. But in addition to that, we must also advocate in the public sphere because our tax dollars are going toward funding systems of miseducation. And if we don't speak out about these things and make the general public aware of it, um, then we'll continue to be miseducated. And we can't afford to do that because so many of our children are already in systems where they're underserved and underfunded and where they're done a disservice. And Dr. Kua, as an educator, how do you get our uh, the parents to get involved with, with the education of their students? I've heard so many times uh, a student, uh, a parent-teachers meeting that many of our parents are absent and people are, you know, excuses. They got to work two jobs, two and three jobs. They can't get a transportation. They can't get a babysitter, you know, just every, every kind of excuse. But the other parents, uh, you know, seem to make it to figure out what's going on in the lives of their, their children as far as their education is concerned. Why do you think uh, we don't? We don't, as a group, you know, in mass, take part in these parent-teachers meetings. I think there are a couple of reasons. For one thing, it's the duty of of principals and teachers to establish a relationship with the community. Many teachers and principals may not lead or teach in the communities that they live in. So it's very important that they be intentional about establishing positive relations with the communities that they teach in. Secondly. Uh, for many black parents to return to the school is to return to the trauma of the scene of the crime of their own miseducation, where they were mistreated um, and and miseducated and so forth. So we have to be mindful of that. And then thirdly, I would say 
that one of the things that the school has to do for the community is help meet needs and solve problems. I'm always reminded of the example of Principal Sean Hurt, uh, who used to be a principal just outside of Detroit, Michigan. And he talked about looking at uh, the homes where his students came from and examining the surrounding community. And what he discovered was that many of his students' parents were unemployed. And so instead of just having a parent meeting, he went out into the community and he solicited business owners who were in need of employees to come to the parent meeting uh, so that they could provide employment opportunities. So dozens and dozens and dozens of parents came to his parent meetings unemployed, but left that parent meeting with a job because he saw a need that needed to be met and he was able to uh, meet the needs of the community. And that's just one brief example. But what we found is that uh, school leaders and teachers that establish the proper relations with the community don't have the problem of lack of parental involvement. Uh, and that's something that, that we have to be very intentional about teaching school leaders about. All right, folks, you're just waking up nine after the top of the hour with our guest, Dr. Akua, teaches at Clark Atlanta University. And he's an author, written several books We're discussing education, just wrote a, a piece for the Washington Post. Let me ask you this, though, Dr. Akua, because the, this the current system as we have, a public school system, is failing our students. We just had a report earlier this year about Baltimore school system, how many uh, majority of the students there are failing uh, the, the, the grade level of reading and math. And that's not just Baltimore. This is because they did Baltimore. But you pick out any school uh, system across the country, it's the same thing. It's, our students are failing. Do you think the fact that if they knew more of their history, because most of these are we're talking about predominantly black uh, school districts, if these students knew about the history that, that you mentioned that the Florida did back in 94, that would help them? as far as their reading comprehensive and mathematical attitudes are towards these grade level standards that are being set? I don't just think it would help. I know that it would because I speak from experience. Prior to being in higher education, I taught for 14 years in the public school system. And I was a reading and language arts teacher. And then for three years, I was a reading specialist. And I was very intent on infusing the best of our culture and history into my language, arts, literature, and reading classes. And it made all the difference in the world. It took some of my students who were even failing all the way up to A's and B's. It increased student engagement and it increased student achievement. But it's not just what we teach, it's how we teach it. And there are many teachers uh, and school leaders who have not been taught the methods that uh, unlock and unleash the brilliance in black children. There are certain methods that have been proven to be effective in meeting the needs of our students. And unfortunately, many of these methods are not taught in the schools of education where pre-service teachers matriculate. So schools of education have to be very intentional to make sure that they're using culturally relevant and responsive teaching techniques as they teach pre-service teachers. In addition to that, we have to be mindful of some strategic political things that have happened throughout the decades to make sure that less and less of our teachers are in front of our children. So for example, the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education um, desegregation decision 
actually, instead of desegregating schools, it led to the disintegration of black schools. And as Leslie Fenwick talks about in her book, um, Jim Crow's Pink Slip, over 100,000 black school leaders and black school teachers were demoted, displaced, or just out and out fired. And so this is really the first generation of black children who have not have had access to the knowledge, guidance, and intellectual authority of black teachers. So prior to COVID-19, there was already a chronic shortage of black teachers and, and teachers in general, but coming through the pandemic, we know it's at, it's at epidemic proportions. And so we have a serious problem going on in our schools today, and teachers are under uh, more stress than perhaps they've ever been, given these shortages and the challenges that they're facing. Right. And tomorrow, uh, the head of the Washington Teachers Union, Jackie Lyons, is going to be with us in, uh, in Washington, D.C. and tell us about D.C., the problems facing the D.C. teachers. We're coming up on a break, though. When we come back, though, this the fact that you mentioned the, the, the structure, the setup of the educational system now with predominantly white teachers teaching black students and controlling the curriculum. Is that by accident or is it by design? Is it, 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 are they doing this on purpose or is it just the way, you know, just the way they think? Just they think that, you know, we, we're all the same in their in their eyes and they don't understand why we can't learn. I'll let you as an educator explain that to the audience. Folks, if you want to join this conversation, reach out to us at 800-450-7876 at 14 after the top there. We'll take your phone calls after the latest traffic and weather update right here in Baltimore in four minutes on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 at AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top there. Thanks for waking up with us this morning. Our guest is Dr. Ku, is an educator, teaches at Clark Atlanta University. He's also an author. He's written several books, and he's written a great piece in the Washington Post. If you didn't see it, just Google it. But it, it talks about our education. It talks about the, the history, 1994 Florida African-American history legislation. He said it was so, very, very compelling. So it was, and this probably gets you a reason why they're doing these things in Florida. But before we left for the break, though, Dr. Ku, my question to you is, the current uh, setup of, of the educational system in this country, is, is it done by accident or by design that, is, that our children are failing from using it? Well, I think it's very much by design, but that's why it's so important where uh, black scholars and educators and legislators and parents have come together to do things like demand the Florida African-American history legislation. And it's, it's so important that we have those different kinds of alliances. One of the things that we have to understand is that the way the system was designed, it was not designed for our children to flourish. However, um, as W.E.B. Du Bois noted in his book, Black Reconstruction, many years ago, uh, public education in the South was actually a black, or as he said back then, a Negro idea. So much of the improvements that we have as it relates to education came about as a result of the activism of black people, black educators, black legislators, and black parents. And so it's going to require us to make sure that we continue to be vocal and advocate on behalf of our children. Oh, yes. But how do we do that? Because you said so many times our, the parents themselves don't know what to advocate for. They don't know what to ask for. So how do we, how do we bridge that gap? 
Well, one of the things that if we look at what's happened in the past few years, the conservative backlash that we've been seeing, um, and also with uh, laws such as the Stop Woke Act in Florida that have been passed, and, and I just want to be very clear, it's not just Florida. Florida is getting a lot of attention, but in fact, uh, in the past couple of years, 35 states have attempted to pass similar legislation, and 14 have already passed such legislation. If you open their playbook and look at what they've done, uh, they were very intentional um, in taking over school boards and PTAs and being very loud and vocal about some of these different issues. And so we have to be definitely more involved, but not just individually involved. Um, anything that we've ever done successfully as a people, we did it together. And so we have to uh, attack this issue in mass. We have to do it organized because it's very difficult to stop an organized body of people, especially an organized body of black people. And these are a few of the things that we can do uh, to head in, in the right direction because parents have the right to demand what their children will and will not learn. And that's what we've seen unfold in these past couple of years with many of these very conservative laws and the conservative backlash against the teaching of our history. And it really speaks to this issue of the fact um, that whites don't want to be held accountable for the wrongs that they've done in history. And they're so intent on not being held accountable that they want to attempt to erase history because you can't hold them accountable for things that you don't even know about. And so it's tantamount to, you know, heaven forbid, if someone were to break into your home and the authorities were called, one of the first things that the authorities would probably ask you is, well, uh, well, was anything stolen? Was anything taken? What happened? Well, if you don't even know what has been taken, if you don't even know um, the damage that was done, then you can't report those damages and receive recompense for what was taken. So as Dr. Milana Karenga has said, one of the greatest uh, uh, tragedies of our situation is that we don't even know the damage that's been done to us. And the reason we don't even know the damage that has been done to us is because so many aspects of our history have been erased. And the fact that you don't know the damage is part of the damage. So we have to be very intent that our children don't experience that same miseducation process that we did. And again, that can be done by advocating, uh, forming relationships with the school, the principal, not waiting until something is wrong, but getting to know your child's teacher and also debriefing with them when they come home in the evening. All right, 27 after the top out, folks. Just waking up, I guess, is Dr. Akua is an educator, teaches at uh, Clark Atlanta University, has written, uh, written several books, but he wrote a piece to the Washington Post that's what we're discussing this this morning. But let me ask you this, though. Do you think this, this cultural educational wars was starting as sort of a pushback because of reparations all of a sudden reparations are now on the front burner people are talking about reparations you think this is a move to head it off cut it off at the past i think it would be happening whether reparations was talked about or not but certainly um i think you could attribute part of it to that because again uh whites don't uh many of the conservative whites don't do not want to be held accountable for the atrocities that their ancestors perpetrated 
upon black people and people of color. But the reality is we would not be in the situation that we're in now were it not for these past inequities and atrocities. But again, it would be difficult to advocate for what you're due when you don't know what's been due. It would be difficult to calculate what you're owed when you don't know what you're owed. And this is why it's so important that we have skilled scholars um, and, and politicians and educators and those that uh, can, can do this type of research to make sure that the claim is clear about what we vote. Bear this in mind, Brother Carl, at no time in the history of the United States has education for black children been equitably funded? I want you to just, just, I want you and your audience to just think about that for just a moment. At no time in the history of the United States has education for black children been equitably funded. Not 50 years ago, not 100 years ago, not today. There's still rampant inequities. And so when you have a claim for reparations in different areas, whether that's housing, whether that's healthcare, whether that's education and so forth, um, there are specific claims that we can make about these inequities. But there are those that want to, this idea of forced ignorance and information suppression goes all the way back to our captivity and enslavement. It was in the best interest of, uh, of the plantation owners and the, the slave masters, or I, I prefer the term slave monster, as my good friend Tishango and Billy Shaka says, but it was in the best interest of the slave monster to ensure that their captive Africans were ignorant. ignorant. So they had a policy of forced ignorance and information suppression. We are the ones, as African people, who taught the world reading and writing and language and literature architecture and engineering and mathematics and medicine and science and technology. But then when we were brought to America, we were forced not to read under penalty of mutilation and sometimes even death. You could have a finger or a hand cut off or you could even be killed. And so that, uh, that policy of, of, of forced ignorance and information suppression was necessary in the making and keeping of a slave. And what we find today is that these policies of forced ignorance and information suppression are essential in the maintenance of a system that keeps us disempowered. All right. 30 minutes after Tom Vail just joined us. I guess she's Dr. Akua from Atlanta, professor at Clark Atlanta University. He's an author. He's written several books. And he wrote a piece to the Washington Post, so we're discussing this morning, uh, the cultural educational wars. Uh, Dr. Akua, is, is both political parties uh, guilty of this, or is it just one political party that, that's because uh, we hear about now? But in the past, and if you look at it in its entirety, because she said that at no time has education for our children been equitably funded. Are they both guilty? I would say they're absolutely both guilty. We always have to remember, and it's been said before, that whether it's right wing or left wing, those are two wings on the same bird. Um, but we can say um, in recent times, the Republican Party has been more guilty. But in order to, um, in order to enact any type of change, we have to be very active. 
And so our analysis of the Republican Party, the same things that we use to analyze them, we have to use to um, to analyze the the Democratic Party as well. So I don't believe either of them should be uh, left off the hook. We have to advocate and we have to be very intentional about what we want. We can't just complain about the problem. We have to offer a solution. Uh, one of the solutions that 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 we've proposed uh, to parents and school systems, we've created a curriculum called Reading Revolution Online. And your listeners can go to readingrevolution.org uh, to access that and, and have a free demo. But basically, that's a curriculum that, that we've developed um, that allows students to learn firsthand about our history and our culture by way of 90 brief reading selections about our history and culture, about black heroes and sheroes, ancient and modern. And in the midst of, of those reading selections, there are also 90 captioned videos. You also have vocabulary activities, grammar and writing activities. You have a comprehension assessment. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a very comprehensive curriculum that allows parents at home to supplement their child's education or for those progressive educators that allows them to have a culturally relevant and responsive curriculum that they can use in the school. But going back to the original answer to your question, um, yes, we have seen the Republican Party spearhead this backlash against um, black people and against the general American public to keep us ignorant. All right, 26 away from the top there. We're going to take our first look at the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. When we come back, though, uh, Dr. Ku, I want you to get in deeper on the solution to the school curriculum culture wars. If you can explain it more in depth for our audience. Folks, you got questions, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL for information is power. Clinical psychologist Dr. Edwin uh, Nichols is going to uh, talk about how, you know, explain actually how escalated police stops of black men, if you've been stopped by the cops, you understand this, are linguistically and psychologically distinct in the earliest moments. We're talking about the earliest moments now, not later on, because what happens in the earliest moments leads to what happens later. Before we get to Dr. Nichols, Black Women for Positive Changes, Dr. Stephanie Myers will be here. She says the group has a new technique technique used to uh, to reduce violence. And later this week, you're going to hear from activist Charles Barron and also Griot, Professor James Small will be here. So if, if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio is locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, Dr. Akua, can you get deeper into, uh, tell us about the solutions? Because, you know, we're all about solutions here. We, we know what our problems are. We face them each and every single day. But what are some of the solutions we can do to combat this attack on our educational system? Sure. And I definitely want to encourage uh, the listeners to to Google and and read the article for themselves, but I'll go through some of those things. My last name is spelled A-K-U-A, uh, Chika Akua, C-H-I-K-E, last name A-K-U-A. If you Google that with Washington Post, the article will come up. And in it, I do offer some solutions. And one of those is to educate school leaders and teachers in the best of African-American culture, history, views and values. And I say in the best of our culture, because for the most part, what has been placed in broad circulation is not the best of our culture, 
but the worst of our culture. And oftentimes that's what our children get exposed to. And without a counterbalance of exposing them to the best of the culture, they will assume based on what they see in media and, and different things of that nature and a lack of, of proper school curricula, they will assume that to be black means to be ignorant, means to be uneducated, means to be disrespectful, and will assume that we made no meaningful contributions uh, to America or to humanity. So the first thing is to educate school leaders and teachers in the best of African-American history, culture, views, and values. And just to be clear, we want our children to have an understanding of the best of all of the cultures represented in America. So, for example, you know, uh, I used to teach about all the cultures, but I wanted to make sure that our children were firmly rooted in their own culture first. Some of the uh, legislation that has come forth, re forth recently um, seeks to make sure or suppose that they don't want white children to feel discomfort or uncomfortable um, about the acts of their ancestors. But in reality, when I would teach about different acts of oppression, I wanted my students to feel uncomfortable about acts of oppression. So if I taught about how Frederick Douglass um, had to confront um, his slave master and actually fought him to gain his freedom, I wanted my students to feel uncomfortable about the notion of a person being enslaved. When I taught uh, a story by uh, Japanese-American Yoshiko Uchida about the internment camps that Japanese people were placed in uh, during World War II, I wanted them to feel uncomfortable about the acts of oppression enacted upon Japanese-Americans. When we learned about Chief Dan George and the genocide of indigenous people, I wanted them to feel uncomfortable about those things. When I taught them from the diary of Anne Frank, I wanted them to feel uncomfortable about the Holocaust of the Jews. And so some of the legislation that's coming forth now, uh, they say they don't want students to feel discomfort or to feel uncomfortable. When our students feel uncomfortable, that's what brings about change. That's what shapes a person and a people's moral compass. So we want school leaders and teachers to be educated in the best of African-American culture, history, views, and values. That's number one. Number two, infuse authentic African and African-American culture and history into lessons, teaching methods, and instructional materials. That was the hallmark of my teaching career. I saw what was missing from the curriculum and infused it into my teaching, and it made all the difference in terms of student engagement and achievement. As I mentioned before, it took some of my uh, lower-performing students literally from Fs to As simply by infusing these um, uh, authentic African and African-American examples of culture and history. But it's not just the what, it's the how. Remember we mentioned before that there are certain methods that have been proven to release and unleash uh, the genius and the brilliance in black students. And so we have to infuse those authentic uh, methods into our teaching. And then thirdly, uh, our, our children are very capable themselves. We simply have to provide age-appropriate opportunities for students to do their own fact-finding and their own research using historically and culturally authentic resources. They have questions about why their community looks the way it does. They have questions 
about what goes on in their community. Uh, as I raised questions with my students, they would ask me about why they were being followed in the store. We raised questions about why there was a check cashing place on just about every corner in our community. Uh, we looked at what our communities used to be um, and the fact that there was a time in our community where you didn't even have to lock your door at night. And so there has to be opportunities to provide uh, age-appropriate opportunities for students to do their own fact-finding and research using historically and culturally authentic resources. So these well, are just a few this of the things that we can do. Right. At 14 away from the top, the white fragility, as they call it, is the concern for the white students, the white teachers and DeSantis and the like is the fact that if, if our students know, know or are taught what their ancestors did to our ancestors, there might be some retributions. And I ask this question because I, I, I can never forget a, a trip to the, the, the Cape Coast with the dungeons and the brother was with this big brother, uh, uh, you know, melanin challenged brother, light skinned brother. He went in there and he came out and he was all in tears. He was mad. He was angry. He was, he was so upset. He, I mean, he was, he was just full of rage he wanted to slap the first white person that he could see. But, but fortunately, we were in Ghana, so, you know, there weren't too many around. But, man, we had to restrain his brother because he was just, he was just, he was just, he was gone, you know, but what he saw in, in the dungeons. I'm just wondering, is, is that the kind of uh, reaction that they're concerned about, that these, some of these students will, will hear about how they, the white students' ancestors treated our ancestors, our relatives, and, and try to take mm. it out on them? Well, I've, I've been to Cape Coast, so I understand the rage that that brother felt. You can't go there and not come face to face with your ancestors and the pain that they experienced. But the reality is, yeah, I believe there is a, a lot of white fragility. But just to be clear, I have literally trained and provided professional development for thousands of educators all across America. And I have met uh, brothers and sisters of every ethnicity who are receptive to this information, but there is a significant minority of those who are not receptive to it. And so, yes, there is a fear. There's a deep-seated pathological fear that we will do to them what they did to us. But what they don't realize is that it's not in our nature as a people to do that. We're so busy trying to survive and raise our families and thrive, that it is not in our hearts to go and exact that kind of revenge, unless provoked. <laughs> Let me be very specific about that. Unless constantly suppressed and provoked, then yeah, that will come out. But there is a deep-seated fear, and I believe that fear goes back to, and you know, of course, you know, Brother Carl Francis Crest Wellesley tried to tell us about this decades ago, back in the early 70s with the Crest Theory of Color Confrontation that we've looked at the browning, the gradual browning of America. And in 2015, National Center for Education Statistics determined that for the first time in America's history, that children of color comprise the majority of public school students. That was in 2015. That number has only been increasing. And there are many who are not pleased about that. And they feel that there's nothing that they can do about that. So they started to pass laws and they're trying to build a, a wall at the border. And, uh, and none of those things will, pre will prevent the numbers of people of color from increasing 
in America. And there are many who are not pleased about that. And it, it continues to stoke the flames of that white fragility. But that doesn't stop what we have to do to advocate for our children. We have to be very intent and very intentional to make sure that our children's needs are being met. But, yes, that, that white fragility is very real. Uh, there are some who are receptive to these truths, and there are others who are not. But we can't make whether they are receptive to it or not determine whether or not we're going to speak our truth and advocate on behalf of our children. All right, turn away from the topic. I got a tweet question. Tweeter sent in. Tweeter says, uh, uh, Dr. Okua, many of the black students are behind or failing. How do we stop this system? So we take them, do we take them out and homeschool them or send them to predominantly African-centered schools? Oh, I definitely believe in, um, in supporting African-centered schools, and I'm definitely a proponent of homeschooling. Um, my only concern about that is the fact that that is not a viable option right now for many parents who have children. Um, in addition to that, our tax dollars go to supporting public education, and so we should demand the best possible teaching and services for our children. Um, but let me say once again, I'm a huge proponent of African-centered schools and for homeschooling, and for those that can. You should. For those that are not in a position to do that, uh, we still have to advocate in, in the public space. And even for those that, that are homeschooling or who have children in the African-centered school, we still have to be mindful of these things that are happening in public spaces because it is still affecting our children. So what I like to suggest to all those that are listening is what, whatever kind of school your child is in, we have to be active and we have to supplement their education. And again, that's why we created Reading Revolution Online. So please uh, go to readingrevolution.org and you can receive a free demo. Uh, and what that is is a collection of 90 brief reading selections about black heroes and sheroes, ancient and modern. It has vocabulary, comprehension, grammar, and writing activities to go with each of these reading selections and a captioned video. Um, so it, it keeps our students engaged and will increase their achievement. So thank you for that question. All right, we're coming up on a break. We're going to take another look at the traffic and weather in our cities. Before we do that, though, when we come back, I'd like you to respond to this question. Do you think if we had more black teachers, because there is a shortage of teachers, period, but a real shortage of black teachers, especially is crucial when it comes to black male teachers, or is it the same thing as a shortage of black police officers? Nothing will change. Uh, you're an educator. You've done all the research on this. I want you, when you when we get back from the traffic and weather update, if you'll explain to us if you think uh, our students uh, seeing black teachers in the class especially black men, will make a difference in, in their learning. Folks, what are your thoughts? You want to join this uh, discussion? Reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Keep Good morning again, family. Thanks for rolling with us this morning. Our guest is Dr. Akua. Dr. Akua is an author, a professor at Clark Atlanta University, and wrote a piece in the Washington Post, and you guys can Google it and find out. This is why we're having the discussion this morning. So I was talking about education, and Dr. Akua, my question to you before we left for the traffic and weather update was, 
if you think that we had more um, uh, black teachers, especially black male teachers, would that make a difference? It will make a difference if those teachers are trained in African-centered, culturally relevant, and responsive teaching methods. There's no question that um, having a black model of intellectual authority in front of our children every day makes a huge difference. Our children tend to be more receptive to information in that way. However, if those teachers are only trained in Eurocentric teaching methods, if those teachers come in and just teach the standard American narrative, then our children will be dis just as disengaged as many of them are now. So it really depends upon the quality of the consciousness of the teacher or the leader. And so we say that the teacher is the curriculum. The teacher, by way of their consciousness, by way of their competence, and by way of their commitment. Consciousness is mindset. Competence is skill set. And so our teachers have to be trained in the best of our teaching traditions in order for them to make a difference with today's youth. All right, and two after the top of that, we speak with uh, Dr. Stephanie Myers momentarily, but Howard's calling from Los Angeles, has a question for you, Dr. Okua. Howard is online too. Howard, you're on with Dr. Okua. Well, thanks for taking my call, Carl. I hope you're doing fine. I have a, the question I have, maybe, maybe off the subject, but I want to know, what is the reason behind the white birth rate? I remember an article coming out in the mid-'80s about the binding of America. This has been a phenomenon for quite some time. What is what is the rate of why? Is it because of homosexuality or diseases? Or what I know here in America we have a problem. And also, uh, Germany has a, a big problem. That's because they've got to import workers, I think, from Turkey or somewhere to make up uh, their deficit in, in, in uh, their population. And Japan has a, a problem, problem like that also, where they're uh, getting older and things, and they're used to doing other things. As far as education goes, I was educated in Los Angeles. It could have been a better education, but I had a lot of black teachers who gave me a lot of pride. And my mother, she's from Alabama, Birmingham, matter of fact, and she was talking about the education that she got. Them teachers wasn't getting up nothing, man. They, they, they were on their case, you know, and she would say that. And she expected that from her children as well, because somebody called her my house to tell me I was acting before. Oh, man, I was really scared because my father didn't, he didn't say that. But I was just wondering about what's the, what's the uh, reason behind the uh, decline in the uh, white birth rate. I, I'm curious about that. Right. All right. Thanks, Howard. Dr. Akua, because I, I know you can respond to that question. Uh, a, st a student of, of Dr. Francis West Wilson, for sure. Well, go ahead. Right. Thanks for your question, brother. Um, I'm not exactly sure for the reason, but we do know that whites have always been a minority in the world. I suspect that it has something to do um, with the way of life or the culture in terms of um, maybe eating habits and diseases and different things that have festered over the years, the pollution and all of that coming together. But what we know now or what I've heard is that at one time, uh, they were at zero population growth, meaning for every one that's born, one of them dies, and now are at negative population growth. For every one that's born, more than one dies. And so, again, there are people that have been watching this uh, for quite some time, and they've been tracking it and are very concerned about it. And so, as a result, whether consciously or subconsciously, 
they put forth a lot of these retrograde policies. I'll give you an example that Asa Hilliard shared years ago from a book by Pat Buchanan called The Death of the West. And he said, the West is dying. Its nations have ceased to reproduce. Their populations have stopped growing and begun to shrink. Not since the Black Death carried off a third of the population of the 14th century has there been a graver threat to the survival of the Western civilization. Population among white people is characterized by more burials than births and more coffins than cradles. The prognosis is grim. Now, he wrote this back in 2000. So you can imagine what it is now. Back in 2000, he said, between 2000 and 2050, the world population will grow by over 3 billion to over 9 billion people. But this 50% growth will come entirely from Asia, Africa, and Latin America as 100 million people of European stock vanish from the face of the earth. So they've been tracking this for quite some time. And again, that, that, that long quote comes from Pat Buchanan's book, The Death of the West, which came out around the year 2000. And so there are people who have a pathological fear about the browning of America. And so we have to be very active um, and, and very intentional about being involved um, in creating the policies that will empower our children and our communities and be mindful of this conservative backlash that we've seen. All right. Six after the top of the hour, Dr. Myers is next. Before we let you go, Dr. Akua, how can folks reach you, and, if, and how can they get a copy of that, uh, one, your latest book, and also the article that you wrote in the Washington Post? Sure. Again, they can go to readingrevolution.org. Again, readingrevolution.org, and you can click on Books by Dr. Akua. That has a listing of all of our books, including our most recent book, um, Honoring Our Ancestral Obligations, Seven Steps to Black Student Success. We also have the book Education for Transformation, The Keys to Releasing the Genius of African-American Students. And then we have a number of books for children on the website as well. So again, that's readingrevolution.org. I'd also like to point everyone's attention to a recent uh, report that I was commissioned to write by the Wayfinder Foundation, and it's called Dismantling the Preschool to Prison Pipeline Through Black Literacy and Education for Transformation. If you're interested in that special report, you can access it for free at wayfinder.foundation. Again, wayfinder.foundation, and then click on resources there, wayfinder.foundation. I want to thank you, Brother Carl, for having me on this morning, and I want all the listeners to know we have solutions to the problems that we're facing. We just have to be self-determined enough to uh, educate ourselves about them and to enact those solutions. So, again, I encourage everyone to go to readingrevolution.org because that's where one of the big solutions can be found. I shade of that. Thank you, Dr. Akua. Thank you for sharing this, uh, all your thoughts and information with us this morning. All right. Thank you for having me on, brother. All right. Eight after the top. Dr. Stephanie Myers, good morning. Good morning, Carl. Good to talk with you. Good to talk to you, and congratulations. You received the Presidential Lifetime Achievement Award uh, this year. What was it, on Juneteenth? Yes, it was, on our wonderful Juneteenth holiday. Yes, it was great, great honor and a great privilege to be included among those African-American people and other people in our country. So thank you for mentioning it. 
Oh, of course. Not everybody uh, gets an award from the president, regardless of whatever president. The president's lifetime achievement award. So congratulations again for you and all the other members of Black Women for Positive Change who were included. Well, thank you. And we were very proud to have over the past two years, seven of our members have been recognized and and it's both our good brothers as well of our, as our sisters. So we really encourage people. Community activism is just critical. And we have, to, as people of color, we have two jobs. We have our job to support ourselves in the economy, but we also have the job of community advocacy and community participation. So we were certainly happy to be recognized. I want to talk to you, Dr. Meiser, about the annual month of nonviolence, and you've added families, voters, rights, and opportunities to it. How did that start? Well, we really started off in 2012, Carl. Our organization, Black Women for Positive Change, we really were going to begin with promoting opportunities and promoting pathways to school and success. And then Trayvon Martin got killed, and like everyone in the country, we were devastated, and it made us focus on this violence problem. And we said, you know, we cannot go around trying to interest our young people in going to school or getting trained or vocational education if they're getting killed on the way back from the uh, uh, the, the five and dime store or wherever he went to the store to get a, a, a soda. We can't help our young people if this violence continues. So we started a day of nonviolence. We had our first day at Metropolitan AME Church here in Washington, D.C. Then we expanded to a week. And now in 2023, it's a month of nonviolence, the month of October. And I really hope everyone listening to me will, will think about participating in some way in the 12th annual month of nonviolence, families, voters' rights, and opportunities. I, and I got to ask you this, especially the quote unquote black on black violence. Is is it rooted in, in self hatred? Is is that where it's coming from? I mean, you've been working doing this for you know, twelve years, so you probably know. Is that where it starts? It's not self hatred, Carl. We have a legacy of the enslavement of our people, and really, the slave legacy is the core of the problem: the lack of confidence, the lack of of feeling um, the ability to succeed, the economic obstacles that face our community with the job situation, with housing, the criminal justice system that was put into place during enslavement of our ancestors continues to exist, where you have people who are angry, the same people that um, Dr. Akua was just talking about, the people who are angry about the difference in birth rates, the white versus brown birth rates. Well, these many of these people are, are law enforcement officers. They're police. They're wardens. And so our black community has got to put up with all of these obstacles and attacks from the law enforcement system, from the economic system. So, no, it's not self-hatred. It's a matter of us realizing we have still got post-enslavement obstacles that we must address and focus on in very clear and specific ways. So how do we deprogram our people en masse, or do we just need a critical mass to, to, make, to move the needle? Well, deprogramming is critical, and again, it was very good to hear Dr. Akua refer to some of the issues that need to be addressed. But in our case, 
when we started our month of nonviolence and our week and our day, we decided what is our goal? What are we trying to do here? And we determined that one of the big critical issues is to change the culture of violence. America was founded in violence. The genocide of the Native American people was violence. The indentured white servants that were let out of prison and brought over here to be in charge of law enforcement, these were violent people. And the most violent way that America was founded was with slavery, bringing people and kidnapping them from their homes. So the violent mentality in America can be seen every day on television. Turn on TV or streaming, and you will see violence after violence, guns after guns, shooting after shooting, abuse after abuse. This is a culture that has to be changed. So one of the things that we're really focusing on is how do we change the culture of violence, not just for the black community, but for the entire country. We have tremendous talent in our community. Here in in D.C. a few weeks ago, they had the 50th anniversary of the hip-hop and a, a convention. Okay, well, great. We've had hip hop now for 50 years, but we've got to take a look at what is hip hip hop reinforcing. Are we are we reinforcing positive values or negative? Is the cursing good for our young people to hear or not good? Is the are the attacks against women that sometimes are portrayed? And don't get me wrong, I'm a big supporter of black music. I think that music and film are are transformative, but we have to look at what are the lyrics, what are we saying. So when we look at and, and hold that thought right the there, Doctor Myers, because we got to take a short break, and when we come back, I want you mm-hmm. to expound on that. How the entertainment industry, how they, uh, you know, how they figure out in, into all this violence that we're having is is the blame squarely on at the foot of their table, or what, or is it somebody else, or is it some person or some entity that we don't know who's pushing this violence, especially when it comes to our entertainment and our young people, folks? You want to join this discussion with our guest, Doctor Stephanie Myers? Reach out to us at eight hundred four five zero seventy eight. 76 your calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also on the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. 20 minutes after the top of there, our guest from Black Women for Positive Change, Dr. Stephanie Myers. You've heard her before. They have a month of nonviolence at the 12th annual. They've been doing it for so long. Uh, so I'm going to let Dr. Myers, I'm going to let you uh, finish your thought that we interrupted you when we went left to get the traffic and weather update. Well, we were talking about the power of entertainment and music to change culture. And this is something I really hope that our listeners will think about. We can use music dance, rap, hip-hop, to change the culture of violence. It would be fantastic during the month of October if people listening to me today and listening to you, Carl, would work with some young people. Put on a concert. Put on a non-violence concert. Put on a Stop the Violence concert. Put on a con- We've done something we call Harmony Jam. The only thing is that the people cannot use profanity and they cannot use attack language against women or other people in the music. We would love to see concerts from coast to coast where our young people are asked to write music, 
create dances, produce TikToks. We can take this on and we can win it. We can stop this violence, but we have to really come at it hard in order for that to happen. Now, we know that often in the hip-hop industry and in the film industry, the Hollywood people and the people putting up the money, they will invest in violence. It's been shown over the years. We've had artists that we've worked with who have told us, Jazeera X, who's a big popular rapper, the people who had the violent lyrics could get support before he could because he was coming in with positive. Well, Carl, this means we have to fund our own productions. We can't expect people from outside of our community to do it. But we have tremendous athletes, tremendous entertainers with incredible power. And so if we can go to a show and see Beyonce or see some of these artists talking about love and collaboration, like right now, Carl, we're starting Peace Circles, and we're really hoping that people will participate in that process as well. So we can do this through the music, and people can sign up at www.monthofnonviolence.org. And they can participate. I don't care if it's a background backyard discussion with your grandkids and your neighbors about stopping violence or if it's an event at your church or at a school. We have to go in and we have to sit down with our community and say we can change this. All right. Before we get to the peace circles at 23 out the top, I want to talk to you more about the entertainment in- industry. How are we going to change the thought process? Because you mentioned Jazeera X and he's a conscious rapper, but he's not using profanity or, or speaking negative issues about our women. But he's not getting the, the love from the from the people who run the music industry like he should. And, and we can see that they don't allow that kind of music to take part in their communities. They don't allow their young men to to uh curse and use profanity in their songs or, or talk negative about their, about their women for the most part. Now, I know some of the rockers do it, but how can we get our people to gravitate to what is more positive? Because I think money talks. If, if our people start supporting the jazz acts and those are artists who are doing positive, positive hip-hop and rap, I think it, it will change. But how do we get them to, to, to get to that point? Well, everyone has to take on leadership. So if you have a minority-owned business, that minority-owned business can collaborate with the local school and put on a concert. Our young people are so talented. As you know, we have young people who start their, their, their music writing right in their bedroom with their computer, and they know exactly how to do it. We have to support them. Our church leadership can get behind the musicians in the church, in the mosque. And, and work with the young people. It has to happen one-on-one. We can't just wait for someone else to come and do it. Our young people need a stage. They need a, a band to work behind them. They need to have it recorded. These days, you can go from nothing to these different musical streaming services and become extremely successful. There's some record out now called Rich Man rich of north of richmond or something that some country music guy produced a couple of weeks ago carl and it's already had a million hits and this guy has sold a million songs all about how desperate he is as a white dude who doesn't have opportunity the channels are there we just have to sit down and the brilliance that we have in our community in our hbcus in our black businesses in our churches People sit around the table. Let's not just sit around the table and talk about how terrible things are. Let's talk about 
creating productions with our young people and our adults, singing, dancing, positive music. Let's stop the violence. Let's promote love and healing. We know what the messages are. We just have to get them out. And the young people are very influenced by music, and we know that. You know, at 26 out of the top, a couple of weeks ago, a young TikToker shut down Lower, lower Manhattan and just using his, his his platform, going on, on social media and telling his, his followers to meet him meet him down there. He's going to give away some, uh, some uh, I guess, some uh, entertainment sets that he's going to give away. And it was crowded, and they shut down uh, you know, 14th Street down in the village near NYU. But he could do that by just tweeting. How can we get them people as influential like that person to do something positive to our people, to say something or do something positive that we don't have these these continuing gang wars and uh, turf wars between our young people? How can we reach young people like that, the shot callers, if you will, to, to make that change? Absolutely. The young people call themselves influencers, and he was one of the best examples of an influencer that we've seen recently. I'm sure he had no idea that that message was going to travel like it did and people would come flooding downtown to get his equipment. But it was a great example of his power. We have to help our young people know you have power. You can bring about change. They're fearing so left out. One of our uh, representatives in our group, Stan Jackson, who was one of the honorees at the uh, President Biden event, and he's a local businessman, he shared with me recently, he was in a discussion with a young man, and he said, okay, what is it you want to do? What is it you want to do with your career? And the young man said, I don't have to do anything. I just have to take it from you. And he was like, what? We have got to help our young people see vision. We had a young man tell me one time at one of our events, the problem is you adults are so busy with your own lives and your own careers, you don't have time for us. You haven't given us any dreams. You haven't given us a vision of the future. So what we have to do is sit down with our young people and help them see that their talent is truly tremendous and then help them manifest that talent into if they want to make T-shirts, then help them sell them. If they want to write music, help them show how they can do streaming. We did a voting rights um, TikTok last year to encourage people to turn out to vote. And we put it up on TikTok, and we danced with kids from Duke Ellington School of the Fine Arts here in D.C. We had the youngest one was 14 years old, and the oldest one was Reverend Dr. Barbara Reynolds. I won't give her age, but she was the elder. We have to collaborate intergenerationally. And that's exciting, and it's beautiful, and everyone loves it when you do it. Right. Well, let me jump in here and ask this. As, as a baby boomer, I, I keep hearing these young people, you know, pointing the finger at our generation that we didn't do anything. We didn't help them. I'm just wondering, in your thoughts, is that a fair critique? Well, great question, Carl. Um, I think it is in many ways. I think that the baby boomer generation was pushed to break into the glass ceiling. And so we focused on our black power movement our protest, our advocacy. We were out there with the Black Panther Party and the Black Students Union getting black history curriculum. And then when we had our kids, we were focused on our careers, trying to move into a good neighborhood, make money, pay the mortgage. So you had a lot of kids that became latchkey children. Nobody got home until six or seven in the evening. And the kids would get home from school around three or 4.30. 
3 o'clock or 4 o'clock, no one was there. So for the next couple of hours, they were alone. So I think that we've got to find ways to have more involvement in the lives of our kids so they don't feel that they're left out. They're very demanding. The Gen Z generation and the millennials, Black Women for Positive Change has a Gen Z connection, and they want your full attention. These kids are not just taking a piece of it. And if they don't get it, then they go join the gang or the group in the community that they think will give them attention. Now, the tragedy of that is if they get into the wrong gang and that gang is dealing drugs or, or, or doing stealing cars. I mean, right now we have a, an increase of, of crimes against auto theft up that's 115% up in D.C., car theft. And these are 14- and 15-year-old kids out doing uh, car theft. This is crazy. So we've got to find alternatives. We have a saying in our group uh, that we have opportunities as alternatives to violence. We're trying to start a positive change academy. We believe that if we can introduce our kids to how to, how do you create artificial intelligence? How do you build a robot? How do you fly into space? These kids are smart. They want to learn the urging. They want to learn, excuse me, the emerging edge technologies. That's what they want to learn. They don't want to be some, you know, nine to five um, pancake flipper at a, at a restaurant. They don't want to do that. They want to be out there on the edge. And, of course, that's what rap kind of offers to them. But we've got to be out on the edge in a positive, productive way, not a self-destructive way. So, so what are they telling you? You work with these young people. What, what else are they telling you that they, they want from us? The, you know, people listening right now can, can make a difference in their lives. What is it they want? Well, I think the people listening right now need to listen to them. And they can sign up with us, uh, www.monthofnonviolence.org. Sit down with the kids at the school down the street. Sit down with the kids in your neighborhood and in your family and listen to them. They want to talk and express what's on their minds. And oftentimes, they're afraid to express it because they're afraid of retribution if they tell you honestly how they feel. So we have to create an environment of trust. Maybe the young person doesn't feel confident talking to mommy or daddy because they know they're up to something wrong. So maybe they need to talk to the mentor who will help them realize, look, you don't want to go down this pathway. This might get you arrested and get you in jail. They might not want to confess that immediately. But we have to create environments of communication. And this is something that every single individual can do. But that's really cre creative, creative, creative ways to create trust, communication, and listening are ways that we can help reduce some of the negative behaviors that people are feeling. All right, we're coming up on a break. When we come back, though, uh, uh, Dr. Marsh, if you can explain the peace circles for us, uh, this new technique that you're adopted, I'd appreciate it. Folks, you want to join this conversation with Dr. Stephanie Myers from Black Women for Positive Change, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes after the news, traffic, and weather update right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. 
And good, um, good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour with our guest, Dr. Stephanie Myers from Black Women for Positive Change. Before we go back to Dr. Myers, I'm going to remind you later this morning, we're going to speak with industrial and clinical psychologist, Dr. Edwin Nichols. Dr. Nichols is, is going to explain to us how escalated police stops of black men are linguistically and psychologically distinct in the earliest moments. And that's the key, the earliest moments. And later this week, you're going to hear from activist uh, uh, Charles Barron. Also, Griot, Professor James Small will be with us. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, you're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. Uh, Dr. Myers is about to tell us about these peace cells, but if we do that, uh, Dr. Myers, Willie in New Orleans has a question for you. Willie is on line one. Willie, you're on with Dr. Myers. Hey, good morning, Dr. Myers and Carl. Hope you're all doing well. One of the questions that I have is why are other minority groups able to receive the same Eurocentric education and thrive while our kids are not, according to the previous uh, expert on. And I I just think it's a focus of uh, where the families um, are putting an emphasis. Well, I think that's a very um, interesting insight, and I think you're right. The families have to emphasize education in the home. That's where the problem starts at the kitchen table. Families have to teach their kids black history. They have to teach the kids that they can do science and technology and math. And a lot of times we have other communities where they teach their kids at the age of two and three that they can do all of these advanced technologies. And and our kids can too. Our great-grandchildren are using their computer tablets at the age of three and four. So we have to continue to support and reinforce. The problem is a lot of times our families aren't giving the kids enough support. So the kids leave the house in the morning full of stress. I had a young man tell me once that he gets up around 6.30 in the morning. His mom is screaming to everybody to get out of the house because she's got to get to work. The kids are fighting. He says when he leaves the house, he's had an hour of stress already. So we've got to create some peace in the home. And, and, and one other comment. I have well, a before you make a comment, will... Willie, Willie, before you yeah. make a comment, let me just respond to what I think uh, the question is. Dr. Myers uh, did real well. And it's a great question, by the way, too. But why the other groups, uh, other minority groups are able to achieve? Because they know who they are. For us, many of us, our people, children don't know who they are. And we're, they, 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 we're, we're confused, you know, because we, we're black, we're white, we're, we're African, we're American. We, our children are confused. We, the other groups, the Jewish groups, the Hispanic groups, they know who they are. Their parents tell them who they are, so they have no problem. Our children, and not all of our children, of course, but many of our children are confused. We, we just uh, we just know who we are, and that's the main problem. But I'll let you go ahead with your follow-up. And, and Carl, I, I certainly agree with your, your observation. And from, from my perspective, you know, I grew up in a single-parent house, and, and my grandmother raised me. And she'd wake me up at, at 5 a.m. in the morning, you know what, to do my schoolwork. And that's how I raised my kids, right? And so there was an expectation and an emphasis on getting educated, not going out and playing an AAU ball. Got it. That's a wrap. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Willie. That's right. Thanks, from, Willie. Uh, 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 yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, Doctor Myers. But the, you know, again. They, they they know who they are, and many of us still don't know who we are. We're, uh, many of us are very confused about who we are. 
you know, we, we get con con confusing signals from, and our, and our, our parents don't know either. So that uh, many of our parents, I should say, I shouldn't speak in the absolute, but yeah, that's, that's the reason why they, it doesn't affect them as much. And, and the, there's a deliberate plan to keep us confused, by the way. So I got to throw that. Well, we in have there. to start, but, we have to start liberation schools again, Carl. When we were in school, we had liberation schools on Saturday mornings where you would spend time with the kids, helping them, tutoring them, teaching them black history. If they're not going to get it out of the public school system, and if you can't afford to put them in a private school system, then you have to create your own self-awareness system at home. Well, you know, it goes back to the question we the, earlier, we had the discussion we had about the baby boomers, because when we grew up, we were we knew who we were, what we were trying to achieve. You know, black is beautiful with the Afros and the Sheikis, even though it was more it's more uh, style, more than substance. But it, at least it stood for something. And now you have this generation and they don't know who they are and they, they try to emulate uh, white society. We weren't trying to do that. We're going in the opposite direction. And I think that's probably where part of the, 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 the missing link is. Your thoughts? Good point. And that's why we have to create our own culture and feel confident and positive. And the more you learn about black culture, the more fabulous it is. And the more we realize that we are the first people on the planet Earth, we have so much to be proud of. And the inventors in America, America wouldn't be America today if it wasn't for the brilliance of the inventions that, that start right with the cotton mill and go to the, the traffic light. We have had incredible gifts. And this is why we have to stop, slow down, and let's move into this conversation about the peace circles because that's the mechanism to begin to get out of this frantic pace that everyone is in. And let's sit down and reflect and find out who we are and what do we want as we move towards the future. All right. Explain to us the peace circles. Okay, the peace circles are something that we learned about in our organization from some of our members. The uh, Renata Valerie, who's with the Peace and Education Organization, Kimberly Best is with Best Conflict Solutions, and the National Association for Community Mediation. They started to talk to us about what they call restorative circles. And this is something going on in schools. It's not new. It's something that's been going on in schools, but we just hadn't heard about it. And what's really beautiful about the peace circles is that they grow out of our culture. The Maasai people of Kenya in Tanzania, the San people in South Africa, the Zulus, people in our culture are people who have learned to sit together in a circle and communicate and find a way to share perspectives and address conflict. This is what a peace circle is. And what we're promoting for October is we want the schools to plan to have a circle of young people during the month of October, every day in the week, once a week, on the weekend, whatever works for them, to sit down with the adults and the young people and create a vision for the future that is nonviolent, a violent-free future. Now, how do you do that? You sit down with the young people and you ask them, what's on your mind? What's bothering you? Give the young people a chance to express themselves is what the core of the Peace Circle is, to promote voice and collaboration among young people to create a violence-free future. You can start it in elementary school. Our children are so smart at the ages of four and five. They know what they're upset about. So we're asking people to create Peace Circles, and Carl, our 
leaders in our group in this peace circle field, the ones I mentioned, Renata Valerie, who's a professor at Dominguez Hills University in Los Angeles, and Kimberly Best with Best Conflict Solutions, these women have written a free peace circle toolkit. And anyone listening to me who signs up at www.monthofnonviolence.org can get a free Peace Circle Toolkit. They can download it and read it and learn about the history of Peace Circles from people of color. Learn about how you have a script and, and the way that you work with the young people. They have samples of scripts up there. And how you can talk with the young people about empathy, bravery, nonviolence, forgiveness. And what they have found in the schools that are using Peace Circles, Carl, is that the fights are reduced. If a young person has a chance to talk to another young person that they're ticked off with and they are able to communicate, they can work out the potential violence. And that's where we want to go with this. Our 100 fathers, headed by Frank Malone, one of the honorees with uh, President Biden's event, he's going to work with the young men and show them how to create peace circles. So this is something that is it has great power, I believe, as an intervention. But people have to be willing to sign up, get the toolkit, sit down with your grandkids, sit down with your kids, learn how to do this. It's a new tool. All right. 11 away from the top of the hour. Eric wants to join the conversation. He's in Forestville in Maryland. He's on line one. Eric, you're on with Dr. Myers. Uh, good morning, Mr. Nelson. Thank you for, again always for th- taking my call. And good morning, Dr. Myers. I have uh, really three points. Um, one, uh, everything starts at the home, you know, uh, as far as young kids. And I solely based that on uh, kids. Well, I was brought up. I was brought up in a two-parent home, and, and uh, I learned right from wrong. And so that's where it starts. You can't expect society as a whole to, to uh, teach kids right from wrong. Uh, number two, um, I, I saw as a police officer, <laughs> uh, young kids, teenagers go and do property crime in a high, for uh, uh high-end uh, neighborhood, but they never committed violence in those neighborhoods. So they know who to who to target, except some of themselves. And number three, um, uh, People in charge, uh, the mayor, the city council members, and so forth, they see it as they see what's going on, and they refuse to 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 put their all in all in that. And number four, I was I added was uh, you talked about the Beyonces and the the uh, Michael Jordans and 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 those billionaires. They're far removed from 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 what they know is happening, but they won't. They have a platform, and that's what bothers me the most. They have a platform to talk from. And to to get to reach these people, these young kids, but they won't do it. So um, those are my three points that I wanted to uh, tell you, Doctor and uh, Mr. Nelson. Thank you. Thanks, okay, Eric. thank Dr. you. Okay. Well, he started with the home, and the home is so critical. We have to rebuild our families. We have to rebuild the relationship between mom and dad. Even if mom and dad are co-parenting, we have to find ways to make it strong and trustful. We have a couple in our family, in our, in our organization, Mr. and Mrs. Pierpont Mobley, Pierpont and Jeanette Mobley, who were honored also by the Biden event. 
And these, this black man and his wife have been together, and they're role models. We have to find couples that are role models, that work together, have business together, raise families together, and we have to learn from them. What are the keys? What are the insights that you can give us that we can stop all this fighting? Because violence begins at the kitchen table. And so he's absolutely right. The home has got to be the priority. And right now, people put the home on hold. Everybody's on the computer. People are sitting around the dinner table, and everyone's got their phone in their hand. No one's communicating. We've got to have some new rules. We also have to eat together. Danielle Smith, who's in Baltimore, is our leader, and she's going to be putting together peace circles in the Baltimore schools. She is very concerned that people need to take time to be with each other. And we have another member in Pittsburgh who talks about the kids say they don't even eat with their families. They don't have a meal once a week with their family member, mom, dad, brother, sister. That's ridiculous. We have to reinstitute the family coming back together to have meals. And we would love in our peace circles If you have adults who want to support this, but they don't know how to be a facilitator, then make some food. So when the peace circle is over, the young people can have something to eat. We need to be able to talk around the dinner table. My father was a real king when it came to that. My dad believed that every Sunday the family would get around that dinner table and talk about what's going on. But we had dinner together every night if we were home, and we were home most of the time. That's easy, people. That's easy. You don't have to run to the fast food place. You don't have to sit and watch television all night long. You don't have to be on the cell phone. We have to promote communication, and that's what the peace circles are designed to do. All right, hold that thought right there, Dr. Myers. Eric, I thank you for your phone call. We've got to take a quick break and check the traffic and weather in our different uh, cities. As we come back, though, uh, we'll wrap up with Dr. Myers. Uh, also, Dr. Nichols is going to join us, folks. Uh, keep this number handy. You're going to need it, 800-450-7876. Your call's in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Keep Good morning again, family. A minute after the top day. Thanks for waking up with us this morning. Our guest is Dr. Stephanie Myers from Black Women for Positive Change. Momentarily, we'll speak with Dr. Edwin Nichols. He's a clinical psych- industrial psychologist. But let's wrap up with Dr. Myers. So, Dr. Myers, what can people do to help stop violence? Well, what they can do is support the month of nonviolence, which is coming up October 1st to the 31st, and get involved with interventions that can help children and adults learn how to become nonviolent the way Dr. Martin Luther King wanted us to do and to how to avoid conflict. The national honorary co-chairs of this month of nonviolence are the esteemed Reverend Dr. George Holmes, who's here in Washington, D.C., and who gives his voice to leadership all over the country, and Congresswoman Gwen Moore, from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and she's been working on de-escalation legislation that she can't even get through to Congress. So what people can do is to sign up with us. Go to the website, blackwomenforpositivechange.org. Join our organization. Sign up for the month of nonviolence. You can sign up there, or you can sign up at www.monthofnonviolence.org. Get busy. 
we can't just talk about violence. It starts at the kitchen table, and we have to take responsibility for the anger and the messages that we're giving our kids. We have adults who sit and, and talk about somebody else in the family like a dog, and they talk about what they would do to somebody at work. Well, the kids hear this, and while the adult might not really mean it, but they say it, so the kids believe it. So we have to become the top interventionists, join the peace circles, start a peace circle. I wish everyone listening to us, Carl, would at least learn how to operate or to help someone who's a skilled facilitator operate a peace circle. And if they get one of our free toolkits, they can reach out to us and get training. We can help them partner with the National Association for Community Mediation. We can help them form a circle in their community. We have great resources of people who are willing to help. But what we need are people who are willing to stand up, stop talking, and get busy. And I appreciate Eric and the other gentlemen who called in because they're examples of people who are ready to work. And that's what it's going to take, that's what it's going to, take to change the culture of violence and bring the statistics down in Baltimore, in Washington, in Detroit, too many of our black community members are dying from violence. And unfortunately, a lot of it is black on black. So we've got to change all of that. And it's going to take each one of us individually to do it. And the other issue is that the other folks are not going to solve it. They don't care. As long as we're killing each other, it's fine with them. The solution is going to come from us. So at some point, you know, uh, Dr. Myers, we've got some brilliant people in our community, brilliant scholars, educators, uh, scientists, the whole nine yards. We need to come up with a solution or solutions to end this violence. Your thoughts? Absolutely. And people don't realize each young black boy who gets killed, you are eliminating future generations, 60 to 100 people over the next three to four generations will never live because this young man was killed. So it's a curse and it's a sin to allow violence to go on. And a lot of our faith leaders, we call on them to give sermons on nonviolence, but a lot of them don't want to do it. I had a minister tell me once, Carl, he didn't want to talk about violence in his church because he knew there was a lot of domestic violence of people right in the pew. And if he talked about it, they might leave the church. Can you believe that? So we have a lot of issues. Yes, we have brilliant people, but we have a lot of cowards out there who aren't willing to face the truth. So we appreciate Congresswoman Gwen Moore, Reverend Dr. George Holmes. We appreciate you and your media leadership. And I just hope people will sign up today and let's make this a national movement to change the culture of violence in America and all over the world. All right. One more time, how folks can sign up. They can sign up at www.monthofnonviolence.org. And if you sign up there and if you agree to do a peace circle, we will send you a free peace circle toolkit. And it is beautiful. It's really well done. It has the history and everything. If you want to join Black Women for Positive Change as a good brother or as a woman or even as a person who is not Black or multicultural, because we believe the solutions in America are multicultural, come to blackwomenforpositivechange.org and join us. And let's work together and make this happen. All right. Thank you, Dr. Myers, and thank you for all the work that you do. And thank you, Carl, and appreciate you so much and your entire audience. Thanks to all of you. Thank you. All right. 
That's Dr. Stephanie Myers from Black Women for Positive Change. They're based in Washington, D.C. they got chapters all over the country. Folks, I get next guest is an industrial and clinical psychologist, Dr. Edwin Nichols. Dr. Nichols, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning. Good morning. You know, what we originally started this conversation, we ran out of time, so we figured we'd get you back because people said they wanted to hear more. You're going to explain to us how, how escalated police stops of black men are linguistically and psychologically distinct in the earliest moments. And, and when I think about this, I think about Sandra Bland. She's, she's not a black man, but she was a black person. And I think about Ronald Green, what he went through as well down in Louisiana. And Sandra Bland was in, in Texas. They stopped by police officers, and, and uh, that was the end of them as, as a, a people on this planet. So hopefully the, the tips are you're going to give, share with us today, because it's, for some of us in some certain cities, and I'll mention L.A. for one, it's sort of a, a rites of passage to be stopped by the police. If you're a black man and you haven't been stopped by the cops yet, there must be something wrong. But it seems like it was sort of a ritual that they go through to stop people. It, it, it borders on harassment, you know, to stop a black driver, just ask him for driver's license and insurance and registration, that kind of stuff. But you saying that the crucial part of it is in the earliest moments. Can, can you explain that for us, uh, Dr. Nichols? Yes, the study that you mentioned, um, escalated police stops of black men are linguistically and psychologically distinct in their earliest moment. So what that is saying, in essence, is that when a police officer approaches you, they have examined and statistically found that the first 27 words spoken, literally, the first 27 words spoken, determines whether it will es escalate. I'm sorry, it's, it's the first 45 words spoken by the police officer will let you know whether it's going to escalate into where you'll be dragged out of the car, handcuffed, or hurt physically. So when you are, when you think that only 45 words will make the determination between you being safe and not safe, then we need to understand what are, the, what are those things that cause that. And it's the attitude of the police officer when they approach. Now, all of us as black men getting our driver's license have been told the story by our parents. I don't know of any black man that hasn't been told when they get the license about the story, what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. But, yes, that is contingent on how you react to the police. But we've now found that the action of the police as they approach you and talk to you, those first 45 words say, Yes, I'm going to, it's going to be escalated into something that could be my detrimental to me. Or no, it's not going to be that. And therefore we need to know what how do how does that how is that accomplished? Well, the the way that's accomplished is when they are they saying to you good morning. I'm officer so and so. I stopped you because, as opposed to something like, 
show me your driver's license. Give me your identification. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. When you get those kinds of question, that kind, those kinds of commands, that's that's when things become complicated. Now, I want to help us. Hey, before, before you go on, Doctor Nichols, I got to tell you, I've been stopped by the cops several times, and. I've never heard one of them cops say, good morning, good afternoon, how you doing? I've never had a cordial uh, uh, stop like that. It's always your license and registration, (laughs) straight up. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. See, they they don't identify themselves, and they don't give you a reason why you're stopped. They just ask for the documentation. See? And then uh, things like, what are you doing in this neighborhood, What those kinds of things. So it's that kind of behavior as opposed to the other method, which is good morning, I'm officer so-and-so, the reason I stopped you is so-and-so. So that's where we have to put the emphasis on police training. You see, we want, we want not just to understand and diagnose what happened. We want some preventative measures made. So one of the things is to get police to do what they're, they're, what they're authorized, what they're trained to do, which is to identify themselves, say why you were stopped, and then ask for your license. So I'm Officer Jones. The reason you were stopped is your taillight is out. Give me your driver's license and registration. That is opposed to what are you doing here? Why did put your hands on the steering wheel? Where's your identification? You see the the that escalate. Now why does it escalate? As African Americans, our value system, our axiology says that the highest value lies in the relationship. So we approach each other as equals in our culture. And if you do something that I perceive as treating me less than equal, then you have been disrespectful to me and it destroys the relationship. So let's go over that again. If the highest value is in the relationship, we approach each other as equal. And if you do something that I perceive as treating me as less than equal, then that has demonstrated to me disrespect and the relationship is destroyed. So now let's look at that. If I approach you with, I'm officer so-and-so. The reason I stopped you is your taillight is out. Give me your driver's license and so on. That's treating you with respect. But if I say, keep your hands on the steering wheel, I need to rub, those kinds of things, what do you stop? You didn't stop. Keep your butt. You know, that, uh, that anger that they come with. Or a really authoritarianism, that's what it is. I'm in charge, and you do what I tell you to do. Now, when they come with that attitude, you're no longer being treated with respect. You feel already that you've been disrespected. 
And of course, once right. you hold, just- that, hold that thought right there, Doctor Nichols. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, check the traffic and weather in different cities. And all Burton, D.C. has got a question for you as well, folks. You want to join this conversation? I'll call up a couple of friends and tell them that Doctor Ed Nichols is on radio, and he's going to because uh, you may get stopped by the police. You know, it's a great possibility if you're anywhere in America, the police, and you're a black man driving, you will get stopped. It's it's just it's just a reality, folks. And this may save your life uh, on the real tip. So if you want to join this conversation, reach out to us at eight hundred four five zero seventy eight seven. Six, your phone calls in four minutes in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top there, our guest, uh, industrial and, and clinical psychologist, Dr. Ed Nichols. And Dr. Nichols is uh, teaching us actually uh, police stops, uh, police stops, especially black men. He says uh, linguistically and psychologically distinct. And these are the earliest moments. And folks, you remember Sandra Bland in Texas, what happened to her? And we didn't find out four years later because of a video of that. Also, uh, Ronald Green in Louisiana, uh, his death, uh, too. We found out afterwards that, uh, you know, it was a traffic stop and now it escalated. But uh, Dr. Nichols, I'm going to let you, uh, we got some folks who got questions for you, but I'll let you explain again why. Because, you know, if the police stop you, we're not going to be sitting there counting, well, the first 40 words they say is going to go south. You know, you're trying to figure, okay, how's this going to work out now? You, I don't think you're sitting there counting words. So help us out what to do when, when we're stopped by the police. Well, you see, it's, it's a two-part question. It's not, we, we all know what to do. We've been told, you know, we've been given the story or the, the talk, that's what we call it, the talk. Our parents gave us the talk. When police approach, uh, be polite, get your driver's license out, get your insurance out, keep your hands on the steering wheel, don't say anything negative, just listen and what have you. We've all been given that talk. But in spite of that talk, it, now you have to look to the other side. When the police officer approaches you, is he doing what he was trained to do, which is identify himself first. I'm officer so-and-so. The reason, number two, the reason I stopped you is your taillight is out. Number three, give me your driver's license. Your, sometimes they ask for insurance and things like that, but generally it's just the driver's license. Keep your hands on the steering wheel. Now, that approach is what they're trained to do, but they don't do that. And that's where we get into difficulty. It's, it's the attitude of the police officer as he approaches you. Now, what, what are the attitudes that they have as they approach you? The attitudes are ingrained in police training and the sociological and psychological backgrounds from which many of these police come. The program is to contain, control the black community. It goes all the way back to slavery with the night patrol. These were men who had no job, no real income, and they were given a pittance to, at night, watch the, the plantation to see if anyone's trying to escape or if anyone was with, there without their papers. The people don't remember that part of it. If you were moving from one place to another, like you worked on one plantation, you had to get to another, you were given a paper that said you had the right to move from place A to place B. So that has become, in essence, your driver's license. 
prove to me that you have the right to be here. See, we have to connect the past with the future, I mean with the present. So that past said you have the right to be here. If you don't have that, you don't have the right to be here. So rather than to ask for it, they come to the car with the attitude of, um, I'm going to control you. I'm in charge, and you have to respect me, and I don't have to respect you. You do what I tell you to do, or you're in trouble. So it's that the police themselves have to approach people in the way in which they were trained rather than bring all of their negative hostility and anger and feeling that they are to control you. That has to be changed. Now, that isn't going to be easy to be changed unless you can take people People record these things now. See, everybody has their own telephone, so when they approach, everybody's recording. Plus, the police has to wear his recorder, saying what happened. Okay, now sometimes they don't turn it on, but you have the right to keep yours turned on. As soon as you, you turn your your uh, your cell phone on and, and put it on record, you don't have to hold it up there and look at him, but you have to keep it in the car so it's recording. Now, the purpose for that is that if they don't do what they're supposed to do, instead of you getting all frustrated and, and yelling and screaming, just keep following the information that your parents gave you, the talk. Courtesy, give the papers, don't argue, don't say anything. Then after this is over, you then go to the police commission and challenge the behavior of that officer. Now, that has happened many times when... Officers have done things, really bad things, to people, and the challenge is made. Right here in the District of Columbia, um, we have had, uh, on a couple of occasions, this is not current, with current police chief, but we've had a couple of occasions where officers have been uh, the, the, um, the, commission, the people who look at this have said, this officer should not be in the police force. He just should not be on the police force, and they have said he should be dismissed. And he's dismissed, but the semicolon, however, comma is the police union steps in and gets him back on the force. So you have two things that you have to look at. You have to look at what you can do and the procedure that you can use after being abused. Now, if you excel, when they come with all this hostility and the desire to control, you're very, don't raise your voice, keep your voice low and well modulated, and follow. But if anything, when, it, when it's not like it's supposed to be, those three steps first, then that's when, when you go to the review board for the police authority. Once that is done, if the police officer is to be disciplined, then the only way you can make sure that he's being disciplined is to check to find out from your community, your council person, that he's been, been, been disciplined. Now, what happens is the union steps in and nullifies that behavior. So it's only when you have control over the police union or they don't have the final say in the disciplinary behavior for the police officer, only then can you really do something about it. 
that's the only time you can do something about it. Now, the idea of police stopping you and and the psychological things that go on, I'll be willing to talk to you about those and discuss them. But remember, in their training, and, and this is what each person's, your council person should go have the police commissioner come and indicate that they want these three things in every police stop without any other any other behavior first. I am police officer Joan. The reason I stopped you is the taillight is out. Give me your credentials, driver's license. Now, if those three things are not done, then it should be reported that they were not done and not done in that order. Now, why do they stop? They then want to know, have you got any, have you got any weapons in the car? Do you have any drugs in the car? Now, when you say you have a weapon in the car, you're subject to be killed. Remember the man in, 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 in Minnesota that was sitting in the passenger seat with a legally permit to carry a gun, and he had the gun with him. The police officer came around and shot him and killed him because he was so terrified. You see, when police approach you, they don't know what's going to happen in terms of them. Because there are a lot of people out here now that don't care. So when a police officer comes up, they're not intimidated. He's, some of these young people, you know, to get some, you got to, you know, you bring, you want some, you got to bring some, and that's their attitude. So they're coming with two, two aspects: one of fear, their own personal fear, and the other, I'm in charge and I'm going to control you. So even though they approach with fear, they dominate. They want to maintain the appearance that they're in charge. Now, when they are not in charge, that's when you have people running away and getting shot in the back and all these other kinds of things because the personal anger of the police officer is so overwhelming that I've got to control you, even if I have to kill you. And that's when you get all these bogus stories about this is what happened and that's what happened, and then later something comes out that it wasn't true. But one thing that has to happen is the police union cannot have the final say in the disciplinary action of a police officer when the the um, community-based police review committee has said that person must be disciplined or fired. They don't have the final say. But in most places and most times, the police union has the final say. They'll discipline two days off without pay or this. They bring the same person right back on, and we have reputation for that. Then in some communities, you have a squad that is, um, if you go back to slavery, there were certain people on the plantation that were black, but they were the people that that listened in the community to see what was going on. These were the people that were the most violent against other blacks. These were the people who did the beating of a black person that had to be whipped. They were the persons that did that. Now that's, I'm going to use the the N-word, that was the N-word patrol. That was the head in in charge. And you have in police groupings, Little cores of police officers, five or six, that represent that. 
You also have white beliefs that represent that. So these are, the, but they are all focused in the black community, which says when you send that squad in, everybody's afraid. Nobody feels safe when that squad goes in, and their purpose is to beat up. His, remember the young man was beaten to death, and this was this, this was this in in inward group that were told as panthers or whatever they call themselves to go into the community and knock heads, and that's what they do. Now, you don't have a public service announcement about that being the reality, but the reality is they do exist, and they they should not exist. They should not exist because too many innocent people are hurt in relationship to how many people they actually catch with whatever they're trying to catch or, or do. Right. And hold that thought right there, Dr. Nichols. We've got, we got to take a short break and check the latest news, traffic, and weather. And we've got a bunch of folks got questions for you. We'll get to them as well. If folks, you want to join this conversation with our guest, Dr. Nichols, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes at uh, 27 away from the top of the hour in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour. Thanks for rolling with us all morning long. It's been an interesting morning as usual. I guess it's Dr. Ed Nichols. Dr. Nichols is an industrial and clinical psychologist, and he's explaining to us what happens when the police stop us, when they stop black men. He says we're linguistically and psychologically distinct, The how it escalates in the, in the earliest moments. And that's what you have to pay attention to. And, of course, remember what happened to Sandra Bland. She's not a black man, but she is, she is a sister who got stopped. And also remember what happened to Ronald Green down in Louisiana. He was, he was just driving. He got stopped. Both of them are no longer here with us. But before we go back to Dr. Nicholson, your phone calls, so let me just remind you, coming up in the next few days, you're going to hear from activist Charles Barron and also Griot. Professor James Small will be here. So if you're listening to us in Baltimore on 1010, you're on the right spot, WOLB. And the same goes for folks in the DMV on FM 95.9. FM and on the AM side, 1450 WOL. All right, let's take some calls for Dr. Nichols. Bert's calling from D.C. Bert's on line one. Bert, you're on with Dr. Nichols. Hey, good morning, Carl and Dr. Nichols. And thanks very much, Carl, for having my, taking my call. I always say the same thing when Dr. Nichols is on. I wish he would come on, would come on a lot more often and stay on a lot longer. But um, And I really don't want to change the topic too much because I have family members and good friends that are police officers, and I can tell you a lot of their war stories about being angry and disrespected on the job, because that leads to my question about me being angry, used to be angry and disrespected on the job until I heard a lecture that Dr. Nichols did back in the 80s, I think it might have been the late 80s, early 90s, on the, on the, or in this white show. Um, back in, in UDC, because I used to feel so angry in the mornings when I am at work, and the white folks that I worked with, we would hang out at night, the night before, and then they would walk into the job, walk right past me, didn't say, don't say a word, and I used to be, well, did I do them something, did I do something wrong the, the night before? And then later in the day, they would come and invite me to lunch, or they would come and ask, ask me to help them with their projects, and I would be so angry, I did not want to, you know, even participate 
the damn June, June that course. So, but you had given a lecture on the Ernest White Show, Dr. Nichols, about um, your theory on the um, 3,000 yes. years ago in yes. Africa, Asia, and Europe. Can, can you explain that theory and, and help us understand, you know, how, how we can, you know. Yes, I'll be able to do that. Thanks, Bert. Yes. Thanks. yes. We got it. Thanks, Bert. Go ahead, Doc. Um, the explanation of that. Let's let's do a few more of the questions, and I'll I can give an explanation to it. Well, I can give a quick one. Um, the value system of the European is the object, and the reason it is when you go back to the very origin, that is, with the end of the last ice age, when white people moved, when black people moved out of Africa into Europe, the North Central Europe, there. Their growing season was ostensibly three months, but sometimes they didn't get full three months because the snow wouldn't melt enough that they could plant food and grow. So if you had a full three months, that's beginning of the planting season and the harvesting, uh, preserving, and storing is the end of the three months. Beyond that, there is no time. In other words, you go from A to B, and if, there, if you haven't completed it by B, then you would die because you didn't, you didn't have the food to last for nine months. You die. That's all that is to it. And the way that idea of doing a task when told or when it, you're responsible for doing it and doing it in the time frame, the thought was if you didn't, you died. That's centuries ago. Now, when your boss says, I want the deliverable, which is philosophically the object, by the close of business today, and you don't turn it in, you bring it in the next morning, he says, I can't use it. And you say, why? Because you missed the deadline. See, in Africa, it, there was a, when you look at ancient Africa, where we are the origins of humanity, food was omnipresent. You never have to worry about freezing to death. You never had to worry about there wasn't enough food, there wasn't enough water. Food grew throughout the year. There was something always to eat. If you needed shelter, you could take palm leaves and make like a thatch roof to keep the, to keep the rain off of you or keep the sun off of you. But you see, a thatch roof won't survive in, in North Central Europe. You've got to build a substantial dwelling place. And so the European is concentrated on the object, the task. And in our culture, because all those things were given to us just by where we lived, we focused on relationships. So in our culture, the first thing we do is, good morning, hello, how are you? Okay? I, I was horrified once when an aunt I, I was talking to, I just walked into where she was and started talking. And she said to me, she said, uh, did we sleep together last night? I said, I was horrified. I was maybe 15. I was just horrified. And she said, well, if we didn't sleep together last night, uh, you need to be saying good morning to me. Because the only reason you wouldn't be saying good morning to me is that we we slept all night together. Well, that shocked me because I began to realize how important in my own culture it was to greet. Now, when you go to other cultures... When you go to Africa, in the indigenous languages, there are strings of greetings that you have to give before you ask about anything. So what this man was talking about is, 
when people came into the office in his culture, he's expecting to say, good morning, hello, how are you, how's the family, how's the children? All those things first, which is to establish that there's a relationship, that you're not angry with me, I'm not angry with you, there's no leftover from yesterday. We are ready to go to work. Then people start to work. So he was angry all day because he was not treated in terms of, he felt himself being disrespected because they didn't, they didn't greet him. They didn't, they didn't maintain a relationship. They didn't even establish a relationship. But in their culture, that's not necessary. You have to get started on the task right away. So they're jumping on the task. So that's, that's what this thing is, the difference between greetings and the two cultures. And then sometimes if you want me to, I can go through in greater detail about that. But in essence, it is he was angry because they did not do culturally what he expected, which is to establish the relationship before you do anything else. And in European culture, you do the, you do the object before you do anything else. That's why after the day was on, they'd say, come on, let's go to lunch. Well, he's angry from early in the morning. You didn't, you, we, we don't have a relationship. And they're saying, well, I've accomplished the task, the object, and now let's go to lunch. You know, the, wow, the a great observation. Yeah, yeah, I did not know that. Thank yeah. you, Sharon, uh, Dr. Nichols, and thanks, Bert, for the question. 13 minutes away from the top of the hour. Let's go to Baltimore. Uh, Marvin's waiting for us on line two. Marvin, your question for Dr. Nichols. Hey, hey, Carl, how you doing this morning? First of all, man. Um, yeah, like no, Dr. No, Nichols said, I'm, well, I'm doing fine, <laughs> but go ahead. What I wanted to say is that I've been around the world a lot. And almost just about everywhere I go, I was kind of like getting stopped by police officers. And when they would stop me, first thing I would say to them is say, uh, how you doing, sir? They look at me, they say, how you doing? And then they say, driving license registration. I give it to them. And it's over with. I mean, I don't have that kind of problem with uh, it's being pronounced on this radio today. I mean, I know some people do, but the easiest way to deal with a situation like that to me is you ask the officer, how you doing? Give him your driver license registration, what he's asking for, and get it over with. You don't have to mouth back and forth with him because that's when you get your problem. That's the way I look at it, man. I mean, I, mean, I don't sit in all the way. No, uh, yeah, you're, you're, thanks, Marvin. Go ahead, yeah, Doc. Uh, the approach that he has is perfect. The, but the semicolon, however, comma is how does the police officer approach you once you've said, hello, officer, how are you? Someone will tell you, it's not your damn business. Give me your damn license. Now, that, do you have any drugs in the car? You see, it depends on what that officer is doing. If that officer does what he's supposed to do, he says, fine, my name is Officer So-and-so. I stopped you because your, your taillight is out. Give me your credential. But you see, that's not, it, it, you, it's, it's a two-way thing. You can do all of those things, and generally, you're safe. But if the officer approaches you with his own mindset and behavior, you're subjected to those first 24 words. I'm sorry, the first 45 words. I invert numbers. Is that, is that, is that, is that helpful? Hello? Yeah, it's very helpful what you just told us. He hung up, but it's very helpful what you told us. We're, we're getting a better understanding now of what to do. Cause, you know, he did an excellent point, thing, and in 99% of the right. time, they're, 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 they're thrown off guard because you were so pleasant. It's not like, what the hell are you doing here? One more harassment from the police department. You 
you're not approaching him that way. You're approaching with, hi, officer, how are you? And in our culture, there was fine, you know, then that kind of de-escalates it. But sometimes they come and you say, good morning, officer, you know, give me a damn license. I'm not interested in that shit. I'm, I'm being vulgar, but that's the kind of thing that you offer. You can offer and you can often encounter. See, it's what the police officer brings to the stop. It's the attitude that he brings to the stop. Am I in charge? Am I controlling you on this plantation? Or am I the head in in charge? And you'll get a beating today. That's those little squads that go around. Like they pull that child out to death. Right. Hold that thought right there. Nine away from the top there. Brother Carlos in Baltimore has a question for you. He's calling. He's on line three. Brother Carlos, you're on with Dr. Nichols. Yeah. yeah. Good morning, Dr. Nichols. Uh, I agree with everything that you that you have said. However, I, I just wanted to make a couple of comments, ask you a couple of questions. Uh, with 18,000 different police departments uh, inhabiting the United States, and each one seeming to have its own training and own track record, uh, it seems like the police stop for the black man is almost uh, a death sentence or a tool of genocide uh, because the police can uh, escalate the situation uh, beyond repair, and so the, your life is in jeopardy. I'm thinking, uh, for example, um, of the, uh, the the situation in Ferguson, Missouri, where they used the uh, police stops for, uh, for black people as a cash cow, number one, uh, and uh, also when they locked people up, and, 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 and brutalized people, they use that technique on, <clears throat> on black people. And and to what extent do you think uh, the uh, uh, making up uh, 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 statistics or uh, uh, fulfilling goals, goals and, and um, things of that nature set by the police department itself uh, really uh, is a source of the problem along with the unions. And I'll take my answer off here. Thank you. I'll tell you what, hold, hold your response, Dr. Nichols, because we got to take a short break here. Traffic and, and weather, talking about traffic stops. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, I'll let you respond to Brother Carlson's question and, and uh, the reason why the police are stopping us so often. Folks, you want to join this discussion, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Our guest is Dr. Ed Nichols. He's an industrial and clinical psychologist, and he says uh, he's explaining to us how escalated police stops of black men are linguistically and psychologically distinct. Distinct in the first moments, the earliest moments. He said 45 words. So when the police stop you, you know, when he comes at you, the first thing he says, you that's where you know if it's going to go south or not. What are your thoughts? We'll take your calls in four minutes at seven minutes away from the top of the hour right here in Baltimore on 1010 WLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Rocket. 
Good morning again, family, and thanks for rolling with us all morning long. It's a minute after the top of the hour. Our guest is industrial and clinical psychologist, Dr. Ed Nichols, and discussing, you know, how he's explaining to us actually how escalated police stops of black men are linguistically and psychologically distinct in the earliest moments. Before we left, we, we spoke We spoke with uh, Connors from Baltimore. There was a brother, Carlos. So, uh, Dr. Nichols, I'll let you respond to Dr. C- uh, brother Carlos's question before we take some more questions for you. Okay. Um, what he said, there are more than 8,000 different and, and distinct police uh, departments. He's absolutely correct. There, there might even be more. And some of those departments use police as a cash cow. So they will stop you and give you tickets, and those tickets have to be paid or you're fined and so forth, and they double the fines and so on. So... Those procedures are actually a part of making the black community a, a, a criminal community. Now, right here in the District of Columbia, if you go through one of these little uh, speed places and you speed, then that's $100 ticket. They send you a lovely photograph of the rear end of your car in Technicolor with your license plate. Okay, now, if you are working and you have to a long distance to get to your job, there's something that came up and you're speeding, maybe going 10 miles over what the speed limit is, you get the ticket, then can you afford $100? Do you make $100 in a day? And then, of course, if you don't pay it in the time frame, it's doubled. Now you have $200, which you can't pay. And... After a while, you're booted or something happens with your car. Now, those procedures are to make money for the city. That's true. But they also create criminal behavior. They, they are punitive. So is it necessary for the District of Columbia to charge $100? Well, in order for the city to get their cut, plus the people who operate the cameras, That's a contract with them to make sure that they make so much money. So these are things that you need to do with your council, your city council, to go into what these things that are economically based. Now, in those communities where we have no control, um, then you're you're in a a bad situation. Some communities say that police officers are to uh, administer X number of tickets per month. And toward the end of the month, they don't have them. Then they go someplace and uh, catch you speeding and all the other kinds of things that they used to do. So there is this form of corruption, if you will, within police departments in order to, to have a cash cow. That's the reality. We're very fortunate now when, with, the, um, with the drive um, drive things that you have as you're driving along that will tell you there's a police camera uh, there's police, there's this sort of thing, and a lot of these things have been broken up by that. But you still have these cameras that flash and give you an, an enormous, enormous amount of fine. I think that to be charged $100 for an infraction is untenable because many people don't make $100 working all day long, eight hours. They don't make $100. 
All right. I got one of those tickets in D.C. I can attest to that. Four after the top there. Let's go to Buffalo. Bob's waiting for us on line four. Bob, you're on with Dr. Nichols. Yeah, thank you for your information and your research. You know, they say it's never a problem until it's a problem. Um, I think the idea of policing, besides their prejudicial kind of attitude, uh, also should be factored in the drug and substance abuse. I think there should be random testing for drug drug and other altering substances uh, that boost their testosterone. But as you describe the oppression or the – as you describe it for police, I understand they're more dangerous because they're armed and armed and dangerous. It sounds like the normal everyday face of European domination or what they call white supremacy that we face every day from our teachers to education to everything else, that when you have that white supremacist attitude that, that gets mirrored no matter what job that you are facing – our students go to school and face it from their teachers, from their administrators. So we're programmed to submit, to um, to follow the rules, and if not, be penalized. But um, I was wondering what you think about random drug testing for police, for drug uh, legal and, and, and substance enhancing uh, substances that make them more aggressive, that make them more dangerous. Well, right. I, would, Thanks, Bob. I would be the last person to say that police officers use substances. I would not say that. Semicolon, however, comma, people who smoke the weed, you can't tell. We have no way of testing to know if you smoked weed an hour before. So you can come high to the job, and we have no way of testing. That, that's uh, the reality. I'm just teasing you about the other part. Yes. Police officers are, we have one right here in in his own car. He um, was driving drunk and hurt several people and what have you, right here in the, this current news here in Washington, D.C. But the reality is we have, there are certain things like drugs we can test for, and they give tests for that. But for the use of marijuana, we have no way of, of testing yet to find out how high you are based on the marijuana. We just don't have the test for that. Um, in terms of what I would really like to say is, you know, we talk about the, the oppression that we get from the system, like down in Florida, no more black history and all of these different kinds of things. Well, fine. But because they don't teach it to us, there's no reason why we can't teach it to ourselves and to our children. When I was growing up, the, my father, this is in the Depression, this is in the 30s, he read The Crisis every time it came out. I can see him sitting, smoking his cigar with a little lamp over his shoulder, reading The Crisis. But in our church, we had black history, we had black, all these things. Now, if you look at the Jewish community, Jews are very clear about who they are. They have their own history, but it's not, they are not demanding that the public school system or the public, uh, public in, in general teach them about their history or about the oppression or whatever is going on. They are taught within the confines of their community. So my challenge to people is, instead of talking about what they are not doing, what are you doing in the black community to make sure our children know 
about the lynchings and not just the ancient history, which happens all the time, those issues, but also in terms of how many, you know, a friend of mine out in Tacoma, Washington, had a group of young black boys he was working with. And he said, every week you have to come in with the with the, an inventor, a black inventor, something that they've done. And, of course, he was thinking about the traffic light and all those kinds of things. These young kids came in with what blacks are doing in high tech and how responsible they are. So the information is there. We have to stimulate our children to find it for themselves, and we have to guide them in how to do that. So if you have a group that comes to your house once a week or once a month, or if you have a group that comes to your church or your lodge or whatever it is that you have, a group of people get together, develop a curriculum, and teach our children. We don't have to rely on the system because the system is not going to do it, and it's going to do it incorrectly, and you have dumb people authorizing it. Let me just give an example with that governor down in Florida. He says that blacks came here, to, to they, and they learned skills in trade. And he said... At one time, blacksmithing. Well, if you knew your history as a black man, I know and my children know that the smelting of iron, the development of weapons and and implements to do things, was done in Africa centuries before the last ice age, when white people became white. So if you know that, then you recognize that he's just blowing air into the wind because he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. But if you don't know that, then you're, you're subjected to, well, maybe they did learn something. Maybe they did learn something. I was confronted by one man who was talking about um, the English um, had slaves and they taught them how to raise, in the Gullah land, how to raise rice. And I said, well, where did he get this training in terms of how to raise rice? I, I how many rice farms are there in England? You see, so there's stupid things that they say all the time, but unless you understand something about yourself, your own culture, your own history, your present history, your present contributions to the government, to the to the whole area. The the last major satellite that went up here in Washington, DC. All the white people failed in doing it. There was a black man who went in, organized it, and it succeeded, even to where you had this fan kind of thing that opened out in the middle of nowhere to protect the instrumentation from the sun and then collapse when it's supposed to. Now, who did that? We don't even know, but the white man who failed the job gets his name on the, on the project. See, so we have to take the responsibility to educate our own children. We can't rely on the system to do it it will corrupt it, it will do it wrong. And when we did rely on it, it was successful, it upset white children, and it had to be stopped. All right. 11 after the top of the hour, let's keep moving. Let's go to Connecticut. Uh, Brother Arthur is on uh, line one. Brother Arthur, you have a question for Dr. Nichols. Hello, good morning, and um, good to hear you again, Dr. Nichols. I learned so much from you going all the way back into um, the 90s at First World. Well, I first heard you. Oh, and wow. Yeah. <laughs> and your information really helped me sort out things because at that time I was working in corporate America. 
So the whole thing about attitudes and not greeting and the highest form in relationships versus the highest value in the object or the acquisition of the object. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So it's helped me a lot along the years. Um, You're absolutely correct in terms of the police stops, in terms of the police attitude. And they are, they're taught to control the whole situation and you at the same time, um, which gives me one thing that helps is, Dr. Neely Fuller, um, don't fight, don't fuss, don't flee. Hmm. And then the other thing was... Um, I tell you what, hold uh, on thought right there, Brother Arthur. We got to take a short break here. We got to take another check of the traffic and weather for our communities this morning. I'll let you pose your question for uh, Dr. Nichols when we can return. Folks, you too can join our conversation with Dr. Nichols. Reach out to us at 800 450 7876. Those are the magic numbers. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes right here at 13 after the top of the hour in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. And thanks for rolling with us this morning, folks. 20 minutes after the top of the hour with our guest, Dr. Ed Nichols. He's an industrial and clinical psychologist. Before we left for the traffic and weather update, we're speaking with Brother Arthur in Connecticut. So, Brother Arthur, your, your question for Dr. Nichols. Well, there's a couple of points there, but um, the the number the number two thing in terms of the relationship, uh, and that's one of the reasons why, if you notice, motorists tr- tend to get into a conversation with the police because the police ask questions, and that's designed to trap you. So less is best, and that's also where they get a lot of us to fall into the trap of failure to comply. And that's always written up in a police report, and that is, sometimes you lose your case just because of that. Um, there's a video on YouTube that I used to give to the barbershops and other people uh, called 10 Stops, 10 Things to Do When Stopped by the Police. And it's uh, by Flex Your Rights, but you can find it on YouTube for free. And it, it tells you, give you um, advice to do when you stop by the police. And um, is, there, is there a question there? Because yeah. we got a bunch of folks who got questions okay, for Dr. Yeah, Nichols. I'm sorry. I just had so many points. There's, so, there's such a rich subject. And um, and I think that was it. And thank you for your book. And also part of the solutions is I have a book club that goes over a lot of issues like this. And uh, also churches. And community centers can show that video in their their congregations. Thank you very much, Dr. Nichols. You're very yeah, welcome. You, there wasn't a question there, Dr. Nichols. So we're going to keep moving because we've got a bunch of folks got questions for you. Glaude's in Baltimore. He's on line three. Glaude, your question for Dr. Nichols. Uh, good morning, Dr. Nichols and the family and Carl Nelson as well. Uh, I'm an elderly person. And our community activists for a long time in my community, before we had the problems with the police department, you know, neighbors used to come out and talk to us and we could talk to the police. I always believe that, you know for a fact that we have good officers out there and we need them back. And I think I have a solution because when, when we got the cameras, the phones and all take pictures, I was using that as a good scenario for 
but people, you know, don't get involved. Just take pictures and be polite to the police. Everything that you were saying, I agree. And Brother Carlos was saying, I agree. I agree big time. So, because we need to hone out the good ones and the bad ones. There's some bad apples out there. So we just need to honor them out and behind the camera and get their badge numbers and be polite. And we keep planting the seeds to the young people because they got attitudes and police got attitudes. And and that's not the job for it. But that's the that's a problem that we're going through because they have a quota. I remember when they started that quota and they used us to get that quota. And I know it's going to be a problem. But as long as we keep planting the seeds to the young people to be polite, get the information and let let uh, you know, let us handle the situation, you know, and you'll see a big difference. But we definitely need them, and we need to on out the bad ones so we can get the good ones back, okay? Right. What do you think about that, Dr. Thanks, Nichols? Lord. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Nichols. Yes, I, I, have, I offer uh, police training for the community leaders as well as the police themselves. It's two-day training. And the objective is to bring law enforcement officers and community leaders to an atmosphere of mutual respect. There are a lot of good police out there, and they work very hard. And once they begin to understand something about these, 20, this, these first 42 words and things like that, and we're right here in the District of Columbia, we're struggling with what's going on. But putting more police in the community is fine, but if they have no contact with the people in the community, they don't get the information that they need. So one thing that in some communities have done is you have, remember, they used to have a patrol officer that was the same officer that went through the community every day. So if they would go to each house and say, good morning, I'm officer so-and-so, if there's anything you need, I'm, I'm here to help you. And the community begins to know that officer, then you get information and tips about where guns are, where drugs are, and things that you, you need to know about. But as long as you just drive up and down the street or you stand there after something has occurred and take notes, then you don't have a communicate, you don't have a relationship with community. See, as, as we need a relationship. That's what I keep talking about, the importance of a relationship. We, as a black community, needs a relationship. White communities see the police as it's his job to do what... Uh, what is necessary for my safety. But the communities are different. You have to approach them differently. And that's that's one of the things that I, I suggest. So it's how are we going to change that around? Because that's, that's a, a, a great observation. The white people see police differently from how we view the police in our community. How do we change that perception around? Well, we have two different value systems. They see the police as I'm paying you to do what I want you to do. And if anything happens, call the police, and they will, they will make it work out for you. That's their experience. That's not our experience. Our experience used to be you could call the police and they came to do something about it. But what has happened now is you're, you're not in an object-oriented community. You're in a relationship-oriented community. As a relationship, the police have to establish a relationship with the people in the community. So when you had the patrol officer that walked a beat and knew everybody on that five-block radius, that person was seen by the community as someone you could call and get help or you could give information to, and it it wouldn't get leaked back out into the community what what you told them. So it's, it's a complete different... The communities are different. The communities are different. 
in the white community, the object is I paid you. That is the object. Now you do what I need done in my community. In the black community, it is we don't trust you. You don't trust us. And therefore, we see you as that night patrol uh, and that in in person, inward, in charge. And that's that's the way we see you very often. Now, you've got good police officers out there who are working desperately to make things change. But the approach in terms of how you do it, we have to understand that. What, what you can approach in a white community, you can't really approach the black community that way. You don't get the cooperation. You can't announce that we're having a, a meeting and we want all of you to come to the meeting. We're going to discuss the relationship. You've got to build a relationship. I don't know if that makes gotcha. sense. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah, I got your understanding now, uh, Dr. Nichols. 27 at the top of the hour. Uh, Jason's in Baltimore on line three. He's got a question for you. Jason, good morning. You're on with Dr. Nichols. Good morning, Dr. Nichols, and thank you for your, your just your knowledge and your experience. Um, I'm uh, the founder of one of the first Cop Watch organizations here in Baltimore, the Baltimore chapter of Cop Watch. We were encouraging folks to videotape the officers and just stand there and be a, you know, do your civic duty and stand there and watch over as they were engaging, especially our young black men in Baltimore City, uh, most of the times with no probable cause, no reasonable suspicion. Um, but but you, you make a great point, by the way, in, in reference to these predatory camera systems. Um, we've been arguing that, uh, like Texas, they should be banned. In Texas, they actually found them to be unconstitutional because you're not facing your accuser. And here in Baltimore, we found that these camera systems are predatory. They're actually, if you look on the map where they're located at, they're located in more poor black communities. Of course, folks that are rushing out of the city to go to the county to go to work um, and are getting these fines here in Baltimore City. We see that it's predatory. It's, it's only in black neighborhoods where there's a higher concentration of red light and speed light cameras. Our suggestion is because we have an issue with, you know, trying to develop a community policing uh, uh, strategy. We keep telling them that part of that community policing strategy is having more officers out on the streets. And one of those duties that we used to do was traffic patrol. Um, and they would be set up in the school zone, set up in different areas. It made them more visible to the community. If they had to, you know, uh, run out on a call, they could still run out on a call. But we got away from the basics. And, and do you agree that, again, these traffic systems do absolutely nothing in changing driver behavior? But when you used to get engaged in that officer and you had two choices, you would get a citation or you would get the ticket that sometimes tied into one point on your license, that that had more of an effect on driver behavior than these predatory systems that do absolutely nothing to change driver behavior. I mean, am, am I up the wrong street here? No, you're you're quite correct. Those, you see, when you you said it, I've got to leave my community and race to get to some other community to to get my job. A child could be sick. There's any number of reasons why you didn't get out. You might have even overslept. Let's give that. And you're moving along trying to get through where you need to go. All right. When this camera flashes, that's $100 in the District of Columbia. And where you're going for your job, if you're making $8 an hour, even if you're making uh, $15 an hour, you, you eight, 8 times 15, how much money are you going to make that day when you have to pay $100? And if you don't pay it within X number of days, it doubles. So it's predatory. 
it's not it, it's making criminals out of people that are breaking the law if you're going to be that strict about it but if you have people out there who are patrolling who you driving down and you see the flashing light behind you, you can say, all right, that's a point against your driver's license. Well, only X number of points, you can't drive anymore. So that, that, that modifies behavior. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for your call. Let's move on to 29 away from the top of the hour. Let's go to Roy. Roy's in Harlem. He's on line four. Roy, your question for Dr. Nichols. Is Roy there on line four? I'm not hearing him. Uh, uh, okay, let me, let me just do this while Roy uh, racks up. A question for Dr. Nichols from uh, Brother Furman. He says, gratitude, Dr. Nichols. What should we do if we are arrested after a traffic stop on what we feel is a trumped-up reason for suspicion? Okay, this is when you, you go to the uh, council person in your ward. That person votes on the budget for the police. That's when you go, that person should, should be your representative with the police because they have authority over the budget for the police. So what they do in a letter, when they write something, then you get a response. If you go to the police office and to the police supervisor, um, they will take notes and write it down, but you'll never hear from it again. So this is when you go to the, to the council person for your ward and you say, I was stopped. I was arrested. This was blah, blah, blah. Here's my camera and footage to, however, the recordings share with you. You see, and when you have, that's someone who's over the police. They, they control the budget. And, and that's when you get action. A letter from your congressperson or from your mayor asking something, then you can do it. Now, the other part of that is once there's a corrective action Listed in paper, does it is it actually carried out or is it nullified by the police union? See that see when the police union has the veto right over anything that comes up, you've got problems. Now police unions are very important, and I I'm not, not saying anything about why why you have a police union and why you don't. But when they have more authority than the conviction, saying they did something wrong. And then they nullify it by a slap on the wrist, and, and they go right back, and you get, the, you get the reinforcement of the same bad behavior because it was approved rather than um, sanctioned. All right. Hold that thought right there, Doc. We've got to take a uh, last look at the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. We come back. Roy, they tell me Roy's back. And also, I've got another tweet question for you. Folks, you want to join this conversation with Dr. Nichols, reach out to us, 800-450-7876. Those are magic numbers. Take your phone calls in four minutes at 27 away from the top of the hour. In Baltimore on 1010 WLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. Twin minutes away from the top of the hour. I guess Dr. Ed Nichols, you'd like to speak to him, 
76. Before we go back to Dr. Nichols, though, let me just remind you, coming up later this week, you're going to hear from actress uh, Charles Barron, also Grio, Professor James Flo will be here, and former educator Zaki Baruti will also join us. So if you're in uh, Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in real tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, you're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. All right, let's try Roy again, calling us from Harlem, USA. He's on line four. Roy, are you there? Before we get yes. to Roy, Yes. Yeah, hold hold, hold it for your second, show. Roy. Hold okay, on, Roy. Be, Go ahead, Doc. Be, before we get to Roy, I, this is what I want to be clear and understanding. Police officers confront criminals, the mentally ill, and Proud Boys and people like that that are terrorists in our society. They are serving a multi-ethnic, pluralistic, and linguistically diverse community. Omnipresent is the reality that their lives are at risk. Police academies prepare police for self-protection, train them in law enforcement and community surveillance. Then police are sent into communities often that are very hostile to them. So what I'm saying is that it's a two-way street. Police are at danger themselves, but... Some of the behavior can be modified in terms if they follow their training. I'm Officer So-and-so, Jones. The reason I stopped you is the taillight is out. Give me your credentials. I really want to make that point. And I'll talk to the man now, please. Okay. Let's go to Roy. Good morning again, Roy. Right. Right. And good morning, and thank you for the information. And... uh, There are a couple of things. One, would you touch on how black Ph.D. candidates are frustrated away from their uh, from getting their papers, from getting their doctorate? Uh, Would you also talk about employee reviews in corporate America, how they use uh, false employee reviews to frustrate individuals? And the uh, third thing is. the third thing is, um, well, that's not coming up on my radar. So we're just just uh, those two. All right. Thanks, Roy. Dr. Okay. Nichols? Yes. Uh, this is Black Leroy. I know who this is. I know his voice. <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the things that I do as a um, 92-year-old man is I've been around for a long time, and there are a lot of Ph.D. candidates where you do all the coursework, you pass the qualifying exams, and you start working on your dissertation. And what happens is for young black men, often, not very often, but often, the person who is in charge of doing the work or someone on their committee is not committed to them graduating. And so every time you come in and change this paragraph, redo that, do that set of statistics, or you have someone else that holds your dissertation on their desk for three months, and in the last minute they tell you the umpteen things that you have to do. What I do is when young men are found in that situation, they come to my house. I've got a library of more than 10,000 volumes, and they're all classified Library of Congress, so we can find them. And we sit right in this space and work on that until we know how to do it and also strategize in terms of how to make your dissertation committee do what they're supposed to do. And before you get a dissertation committee, you need to look to see how many people 
that I put on this committee have actually graduated anyone. How many graduate students, have, how many people have they actually graduated or have they just been sitting on the committee not doing anything? What are their publications? And sometimes you quote their publications in the work that you do and you, you'll have an ally. The other in terms of employment re, uh, reviews, um, you, you have, this is when you really count and measure. See, when I did my workshop on the philosophical aspects of cultural difference, counting and measures is how Europeans do things. So if you know exactly what you're supposed to do, it's spelled out. They have this ladder of what you're supposed to do. And you fulfill every one of them to the letter, then their, their review uh, will, not, will, not, will not hold up. Now, another thing is the systems require that you go to the internal person for equal opportunity, and then you go within, with, within to personnel and so forth. But those are all people working for the system. So on the few times that I've had to go into situations uh, in the government, uh, I took a lawyer. And they said, oh, you don't have to. I said, well, it's for my comfort. I have the lawyer here for this review. And in that way, people are on notice that if things aren't going like they're supposed to be, then they'll have to deal with it in court. Because if you go through the system with the equal opportunity and all that, all those people are employed by the, by the people that, uh, and their boss is your boss. So that's, those are the things that, that I talk about in that. Uh, I'm ready for another question, if we've got time. Yeah, we do. Uh, Della is calling from Baltimore on line one. Della, your question for Dr. Nichols. Good morning, uh, Mr. Nelson, and good morning, Dr. Nichols. I, am, uh, I have mixed feelings about um, the, the legalization of marijuana. And earlier when you were talking about cash cow, is that considered a cash cow, the way the legalization has come about? Because of the fact that if people are caught with it or they're smoking around, when they're not to be smoking, they get they might be legally charged. Is that considered a cash cow? And there are a lot of cash cows, I guess, out here in our country, right? I just want to know your opinion about that. Well, All right, thanks, um, the, the legalization in some states of marijuana is creating a lot of money. And if you look to see where, first of all, in the middle of the black community in Seattle, where it was the corner where everybody knew that that's where the drugs were sold. When it was illegal, all these people went to jail. Once it was made legal, an outside person comes in and places their marijuana center right in the center of this, this black community. Mm-hmm. And now anybody that's in, got the money from that, don't they don't live in that community, they're not black or anything like that. So... Mm-hmm. This is a way, again, of drawing substance, drawing material out of the, of the black community. You know, I, I, oh, don't get me started on that. People say, oh, marijuana won't hurt you, won't hurt you, won't hurt you. Listen, I have been a psychotherapist since 1955. You don't know what you're taking when you use drugs from the, from the, from the marijuana people you meet on the street. You have no clue what's in there. And you can smoke some of that stuff and your brain is gone forever. When you buy it from these uh, special places, they are, they are not the same quality of what people used to smoke 50 years ago. They have worked genetically to improve the high and all the other things that people get. But you need to be very clear about if you're buying it and smoking it, what's in it, what variety it is, what the strength is, and so forth. 
some people need to smoke it because it helps them for nausea with their with their getting cancer treatment and so forth. I don't have any problem with that. I have problem with somebody smoking marijuana at home early in the morning and then getting on the school bus to drive your kids to school. That's what the problem is that I have. Or somebody's operating a crane operator, they had their smoke of marijuana that morning before they got to work. What neurophysiological changes have taken place? How astute are you to the job that you're supposed to be doing that could cause damage or death to other people? That, that, that's the part that worries me. All right. 11 away from the top. Let's take him a call for you, Doc. Uh, Pat's calling from Baltimore City. Pat, your question for Dr. Nichols. Good morning. Um, I'd like to know, um, should there be a sign displayed for a speed light camera that is hidden by trees? Well, I, you know, I, there, you should, there should be a, a something that says reduce the speed, speed light camera. I'm not positive whether that's the law or not, but um, that's, what I would think would be appropriate or cut the speed, you know, when you're going up and down Connecticut Avenue, that used to be a speed trap for white suburbanites coming into the city to work. But what they've done is they've posted saying that this is a camera zone and the speed limit is so forth. At either end of that, when you're going up and down Connecticut, north of uh, Chevy Chase, uh, north of uh, Chevy Chase Circle, up to about uh, East West Highway. In that stretch on Connecticut, you'll see all these signs saying that the cameras are there. All right. Doc, got a couple of tweet questions for you. First one says, um, this, my grandfather told me, and this is a female, said, if stopping by the police at night in an isolated area, keep driving until the cops call for backup. They want to get your, they want to get your thoughts on that. Um, that has happened. Uh, a woman was pregnant, and she put her um, um, warrant uh, alert lights, you know, all the lights flashing on the car, and she drove to a, a lighted area where then she with the children could get out. This, ang- this angered the police officer. He was so angry that he said, get on the ground. She says, I'm pregnant. He forced her on the ground and so forth and so on. Now, he was later disciplined for that. But if you are in dark area and you're not comfortable with it, turn on your flashing lights, go very slowly, and just proceed. It's not like you're trying to run away or anything, but you get to a lighted area. Now, they'd be furious by the time you get there, but you don't know what would happen to you on a dark road. Uh, so that's... Okay, and- one more th- r- real quick, Doc. Uh, Twitter says, thank you, Doc. Uh, he's, the person says he would like to attend your class on interactions with the police if he would provide the info. Okay, I... I I don't have that right now because I haven't been asked by a current police uh, um, department to come and and to do the work with the police. But I would be glad to uh, do that with any company, any organization or any group of community citizens that wants their police force to have some training. Um, We can arrange that. That can be done. Oh, one other thing on the coming into a lighted area. Um, while you are driving with the flashing lights going to the driving area, then you should call 911 and tell them that you are being followed by someone, it may be police, with the flashing lights, but you're in a dark area and that you are driving to a 
to a lighted area, and you you put that on the phone and leave your phone open so that they, the dispatch officer can hear what this man says when he comes up uh, and tells you to get out of your car, whatever he tells you to do. You see, the phone right now is our is our backup. They, they, there's nothing you can say about when you hear the voice on there because we have voice graphs. Everybody's voice is different. You can change the tone. I can give you a British tone and so forth, but when you look at the voice graph of the modulations of my tone, it's always the same. So you want to use your cell phone as a recording device so that you call 911 and you say, I'm being followed by police, but I'm going into a lighted zone. My flashers are on. And in that way, they'll call this police officer and say, look, this person is driving to a lighted area, and we don't want any crap out of you in terms of your anger because they didn't stop like you asked them to. I hope All that's right. helpful. I hope so, because we got to stop right there, uh, Dr. Nichols. Uh, but thank you for all the information that you shared with us. Uh, can people f- follow you on social media? Uh, do you have a, a book out, the latest book? I know it's been a while for your books, but how can they yeah. reach you? If that book gives the basic information that these people were talking about that called and said they saw me in 1990 at the First World and all that. The, the information that I have is when we understand the value system of white people, when we understand how they know things, which is counting and measuring everything, and when we know how they, their logic system, it's either or. We are different. Our highest values in the relationship, we know holistically, and we solve problems like cut to the chase. So what is the big picture? Cut to the chase. That's how we know things. Well, if you understand that and you're re- sending a report into your white boss, He's not going to think holistically and, and cut to the chase. He wants one, two, three, four, five, A, B, C, D. That's and you write it in that order, and you're you're mm-hmm. fine. So there are a lot of things wow. that I can share in terms of the philosophical aspects of cultural difference in a lecture right. format. Let's, and I would be let's glad deal to- with that the next time around, Doc, because we're just flat out of time. But let's let's just pick up on that the next time around. And, and thank you for sharing all this information with us this morning. You're Folks, very we're running late. We got, we got to get out of here. We're running late. Thank you again, Dr. Ed Nichols. Hey, folks, stay strong, stay positive. Please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.